Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. To learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Welcome to the Bible. Wait, what? My name's Jeannie and I'm sitting down here with always Pastor Rowan. It's good to have you back, Jeannie. Oh, it's good to be here in this hot seat. I'm not actually sure who's in the hot seat, me or you. Oh, I feel like I might be in the hot seat because I thought I had a handle on these topics and now I'm getting a bit nervous. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, it's, well, actually, I, so I feel like I'm in the hot seat as well because this is kind of tricky. Today, we're going to be talking about God's house. Yeah. And... We're going to be looking at Genesis 35, oh, Genesis 28, 35, and then a bunch of Timothy and a bunch of Exodus. Yeah, some and good scriptures in amongst this lot. Good scriptures, and we're kind of going all over the place. We are a bit. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not. I'm You're terrified. Not. Let's go, Jeannie. Let's just <laughs> jump in. We've got like four weeks in a row with you over the next, as we yes. unpack all of these, um, this theme around the church. That's yeah. right. Yes. It just happens to be me. The, it happens these to be next you. Well, there's lots sessions. of sequential chapters, so it's easy for preparation and everything if you just, we handle it and we'll get a good conversation going, I'm sure, over the next four, four weeks. I hope so. But you're true. It does sort of all flow into one, Yeah. maybe. Yeah. And so I just want to ask a quick, quick question. This is about God's house. Yep. What is God's house? Ah, see that, that's, that's a quick question. doesn't really have a quick answer. Um, I think there's lots, like I've been saying a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of uh, development of themes throughout scripture. And so a God's house is no different to that. It starts with a sense of God's presence in Eden, right at the beginning. That's the place, the touchdown point of heaven and earth where God puts the man and the woman in that spot. And then that theme is picked up as the touchdown point of heaven and earth. And that's the theme that God intends all the way through. He wants to reunite heaven and earth and it happens right at the end in Genesis, uh, in Revelation chapter 22, 21, 22, this reunification of heaven and earth. So God's house is this point uh, wherever there is a, a tangible sense of a uniting of heaven and earth. 
And so the word uh, carries different meaning as it goes through. So it starts with Eden, then it goes to uh, Jacob and his vision we're going to look at, which is where he has a touchdown point of heaven and earth. He calls that place Bethel, uh, which means house of God. Beth is the, Beit is the Hebrew second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which actually means house. And um, El, the name of God, so house of God. So he calls that point the house of God. And then as you develop in further, we'll see Exodus and we'll see the building of the tabernacle, which is uh, the point which heaven and earth are united on the earth, the house of God. And then we'll go into the temple. Later on down the track, we'll see the temple, which was a, a derivation of the house of God. Once again, the place where heaven and earth unite. And ultimately, Jesus is the house of God. He is the point where heaven and earth are united upon well, that's him. A giveaway. Yeah, I've gone all the way through. Jesus <laughs> is the house. Of, well, four points finish. to Jesus yeah. as long as you start with Jesus. So that's that, all the way through. And then in a sense, we as Jesus followers are also houses of God. We are a place where God, where heaven and earth touch down and we bring God's presence to the earth. So that's like a rush through of the whole thing. It's a good scripture lesson. Lesson. Lesson there. <laughs> I can't it's even it's a common talk. theme all the way through. Okay, so essentially what we're looking at in these chapters is Moments where heaven touches down yes. onto Got earth. It. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis 28. Genesis 28. And this is involving Isaac. Uh, no, yeah, Isaac and mostly Jacob. Mostly it just starts yep. off with, so Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him and said, you must not marry any of these Canaanite women. Instead, go to Paden Aram, to the house of your relative, your grandfather, and marry one of your uncle Laban's daughters. Mm -hmm. So he's going on this journey. Yep. And when he's on this journey, he comes to this place which is called... Uh, was it Luz or something? Luz. 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 Yep. yep. And he has this encounter with God. Yeah. It's a dream. A like dream. We've been talking a few podcasts. They had a good conversation with Jeff last week about, uh, previous week about um, the whole concept of dreams and visions and how all well, that's weird and how we've got to park our brain and think about it from that perspective. So, yeah, he has a, he has a vision. He has a dream in the middle of the night, basically. A dream in the night. Yeah. Oh, I should also say he's actually fleeing from his brother, yeah. isn't he? Yep. He so is. he's he's been told to go away. He's sort of in turmoil and distress yes and he lies down um and he uses a rock for yeah. a pillow i don't know how that's very comfortable but no. that's what you did in those days yeah. i suppose but so he didn't have <laughs> fluffy duck cushions no. <laughs> but does that mean he's got nothing he's gone yeah he's pretty much gone with just the clothes on his back um because he, he refers to that later when he comes back he's left with nothing but my cloak and my staff or something like that but when i came back he comes back with a family and flocks and all that sort of stuff but yeah as he leaves he's He's basically fleeing for his life because he's cheated his brother out of his birthright. He's deceived his brother. He's he's not a he's not a model upstanding citizen. This young Jacob at this point, and uh, and yet God's still working in his life. So would you call this a bad point in his life? Yeah, this is a low point. A low point. I think this is very much a low point in his a life. A low point. He's yeah. being told to go away from his family and he's alone. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. And he falls asleep on this rock. Yeah, and I imagine there's a grief attached with that whole grief. thing, loss, yeah. all of that, yeah. Well, because wasn't his brother, didn't his brother want to kill him? Yeah, yeah, his brother had threatened to kill him and he found out about it. It was actually, his mum said, hey, you got to get out of here or your brother's going to kill you, basically. Because he had done some dodgy stuff. Yeah. He yep. had stolen his brother's birthright. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. So, this is, the story picks up with Jacob and Jacob is asleep. It's not really going anywhere, the story so far. 
Um, but he has this strange dream and there's a stairway. Is yeah. it a stairway um, like a ladder? Um, I don't know which it is. It depends on the versions because, um, you know, well, the famous stairway to heaven. Def was, who was that? <laughs> <laughs> Deep purple or whatever it was. Um, or, but anyway, stairway to heaven. But Isn't it Led Zeppelin? Led Zeppelin. Yeah. That's what I'm after, not Deep purple. Led, Led Zeppelin. Um, I was a 90s Christian. I didn't listen to that kind of music. Uh, I wasn't allowed to. No, um, no, it's devil's music. <laughs> it was very conservative in those days. Um, so, yes, the um, whether it's a stairway or a ladder, I, I think that would be open to interpretation. I think you'd have to look at the Hebrew word and... Um, I imagine it's probably more a stairway, I think. Okay, so I imagine so. Verse 12, it says, As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway, in this interpretation, that reached from the, ev the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. Mm. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. Mm. Is he seeing him in human form? It would appear so. Yeah, it would appear that, that it's a human figure or something. Um it doesn't really give any more explanation, does it, uh, than specifically w what you see, what it says there, I think. But yes, my assumption is that it's it, that he's seeing at least some form of, of humanoid. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and he wasn't praying. No, he's sleeping. He, he's I think sl he was. Yeah. We assume he wasn't praying beforehand, yeah. but God turns up in this yeah. moment. I, I imagine he might have. This is all speculation because it's beyond the scripture. You could probably go back to some of the apocryphal, uh, some of the Old Testament apocryphal books. There's a book called the Jubilees, which has a lot more filling out of the Genesis stories. Uh, the Genesis account probably is a simplified version of that, and there'd be a lot more in there, I'm sure. But um, I assume he's praying. I'm assuming he's seeking God in the middle of his despair, as we often do. Um, he's obviously in a, he's in a difficult place, but um, in some way, God is responding to that with this with this vision as he's sleeping. And I was talking to Jeff about this saying, you know, that seems weird to us, but but when we think about it, we all do have those moments of clarity when we're asleep or we wake up and suddenly there's an idea. I mean, you must have, when you write scripts and ideas and things just come to you when you're not thinking about it, it's just, I'm just subconscious brain is working. I know I get sermon ideas and all kinds of stuff when my subconscious is working and my conscious is, is switched off. I reckon it's something like that here too. Okay. And the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They'll spread out. You know, this is, this is huge. This is a huge so, promise. Yeah, this is a reiteration of the promise that he mentions Abraham and Isaac. So God gave, Genesis 12, God gave this promise to Abraham that, you, uh, you'll have this land, your, your descendants will be enslaved in a land for 400 years. They'll come back here, they'll have this land and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God does the same thing to Isaac and he's reiterating exactly the same promise to um, Jacob here or to, yeah, in this story. Why hasn't the promise happened? Why is this taking a long time? Um, well, the, pro the inauguration of this promise has happened. That's Jesus. So uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Oh, I don't mean now. Oh, right. No, I mean then. Oh, why then? <laughs> yeah, um, it's oh. told Isaac and then Jacob suddenly with his head on his rock and he's meant to and have this land and there's nothing of the there. Promise. Why didn't the promise happen? Well, the only thing that comes to mind is something he says to Abraham in Genesis 12 or Genesis 18, somewhere there where he specifically tells Abraham about this, your descendants will be enslaved. And he said, but I'll bring you back here. And then he says, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet reached its full measure. 
So there was something about the way that the people in Canaan were conducting themselves. God was being patient with them, but their sin was getting to the point where it was becoming destructive. And it was probably, you know, destroying the lives of, you know, the rich oppressing the poor and all that stuff we've talked about to the point where God had to do something about it. And, um, and the instigation of the promised land, the inheritance of the promised land down the track was when that level of sin had gotten to the point where, where God not doing something about it was going to be worse than God doing something about it. You know, we talked about the yeah. whole judgment issue. I yeah. think that's, that's how I reckon this is. That's a good answer, on. but. I also wonder if it if it's maybe it's just about waiting for some people to be born or some things to happen. Yeah, yeah, this is or lessons to be tell learned. Tell me more. What are, you, what are you thinking? Well, I don't think much. That was just what came, <laughs> came <laughs> to my mind you, then. You think a lot, Jeannie. Yeah. Well, sometimes there's a story that has to be told. Yes, it, yeah. we have to. There are plot points and twists yeah. and turns. Yeah, and Spoken we get like a story writer. You can't <laughs> go straight from the start to the finish, can you? <laughs> no, we lessons to be learned, yeah. moments that need to happen. Yeah. So he's at this place with his head on the rock. Yeah. And even before this promise can even come into being close to being yeah. happening, he's got to go and go through life. Learn you things, do things. Yeah. And actually, in his case, go full circle from being the deceiver, Jacob the deceiver, to becoming Israel. That's right. He hasn't had the hasn't name change. He hasn't had the name change yet. No, and a big part of that process <laughs> is alert. him yeah. being deceived. Yes. So he has to develop character by being on the receiving end mm. of the deception uh, from his uncle that he did when he deceived his father and his brother. So God takes time to develop yeah, us. Yeah, develop our character. And he certainly took time to develop this character with with Jacob because yeah. we can see throughout this story that he does change. He does. My pastor used to say, God's Pastor Bob, who's been with the Lord now, used to say, Rowan, God's more interested in the production of your character than the provision of your comfort. And <laughs> that is exactly Jacob's story. Yes, it is. Comfort yes. does not produce character no. the way discomfort does. You're right about that. And he goes and he has some very uncomfortable years ahead <laughs> of him, sure does. poor old Jacob. But at this point, he had in this dream, and uh, oh, a really cool thing in verse 15 is God says, What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have promise. finished giving you everything I have promised you. So even though the hardship's there, that's a promise that he can cling to. And let's just mention the dodginess of this guy again. Mm, mm. He's been dodgy, but there's something about God's grace yeah. that we don't quite understand. No. That he meets this person because God has chosen this guy, yes. the promise to go through him. And this is completely God's mercy and grace. Yeah, yeah 100%. This is a story of grace. There's nothing he had to do. No, no. If it was left to him. And that's, that is the story of the patriarchs. In all honesty, it's an incredibly broken story. There's all kinds of family dramas. There's horrible abuses. It, it is the story of God's the story of the patriarchs in Genesis is the story of God's grace. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I said this before, but the more I read the Bible, the more I realise it's about people that I should not be. Yes, <laughs> in a way. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, that. yeah that's right. Yeah, we learn about a lot about examples what not to of do. Examples, yes, of what not to do. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and coupled with that is that reminder that, hey, we are that, but God's grace and God still, still tells his story through the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity. His story is not, his plans are not arrested because we blow it. Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 
So, mm. I, you know, that should be not an excuse for sin, but that's an encouragement that when I fall, God's going to just do this. He's going to say, I'm still there. I've still got you. One day I'm going to bring you into your promised land. And he allows us time to grow and yeah, change. Yeah, isn't he gracious like that? And this is an interesting point here. Here he is seeing, Jacob is seeing heaven. Mm. He's experiencing God, yet he still, he remains sinful. Yes. So God isn't afraid to be around sin. Yeah, that's a good point, Jeannie. Have you, did you sort of learn, oh yeah, God, God doesn't hang out with sin. God is, yes. yes. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And it sounds quaint and it sounds good at one level, but the scriptures seem to indicate that God does hang out with sinful people. His desire is to hang out with sinful people. Not that he lets us stay there, but Jesus is an example of that. It's his coming close, which inspires us to change and empowers us to change. Yeah, it's not like God's sitting up there going, you sort yourselves out and when you do, I'll let, oh, you, can, you can come to me. No, no, I'm going to come to you in your mess. Mm, I'm going to yeah. shine my love and grace to you and that will empower you to change. Yeah, and that's so anti-thoughts um, that I have grown up with, that I need to be perfect, mm. you know, that I need to be, I'm not going to say washed clean because yes, you do need to be yes, washed clean, yeah. but we'll get to, but that you need to be some kind of person to be yeah. a believer. Yeah, good call. I think that's, that's a misreading of the scriptures. And I understand why, because even the Apostle Paul deals with it in Corinthians, I think he says, he says, you know, should we just keep on sinning so God's grace abounds all the more? He goes, no, 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 I'm not saying that. He said, don't, absolutely not, he said. It's not an excuse. This, this theory that God comes close and, ha- and comes, draws close to sinners isn't an excuse for sin. It should be an empowerment for change. And John Bevere has a, a great message about grace that he teaches where he says we've watered grace down to what he calls the big cover-up. It's like grace is, to us, we think grace is just, oh, God forgiving us of our sins. He says it is that, but that's, it's that and so much more. And he describes grace. He says God's grace is actually, um, and this is based on Hebrew scholarship, God's grace is actually God's empowering presence to enable us to do what truth expects of us. So to receive God's grace, he's actually to receive the power not to sin. Isn't that heavy? Yeah. I, but it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, to this day, yeah. I heard that message at Presence Conference in 2009. To, the, to this day, that message is the single most profound, um, meaningful, powerful message I've ever heard in my Christian life. Just repeat that sentence again. God's grace, uh, God's grace is, is God's empowering presence, which enables us to do what truth demands of us. So when we receive grace, we don't just go, oh, it's okay, you don't worry about your sins. We receive forgiveness for sins, but it's not just, oh, your slate is wiped clean. I think that was the word you used. It's not just, or washed clean. It's not just that. It is that. But God's grace is also his presence in us, which actually empowers change so that we can live without sin, so that we can live his way, so that we can begin to live a righteous life. That to me tells me grace is so much more. And it also tells me why we need, why, why God bring, comes close to us. Because if he sat in heaven and said, I don't want anything to do with you until you sort yourselves out, then we'd never change. But God loves us so much that he sent his son into the world. He draws close to us so that we can change. Mm. And he does draw close multiple times yes. in the Bible. Yeah. And we're going to come to that yep. in the tabernacle mm. specifically. But this is, I guess, what's happening here is, an Eden moment. Yes, this is God a classic Eden on moment. Earth. This is probably one of the primary um, Eden moments in the book of Genesis after Eden itself. 
the, that you're supposed to think heaven and earth uniting in this in this stairway. And also the relationship, uh, the relationship that we had with with God in Eden. Yes. Uh, we were close. We walked with Him, yes. and here we are again yep. experiencing Him. Yep. Okay. This is such a prevalent one. I don't know if it's in, if we've got it in our New Testament readings, but this is such a prevalent one that Jesus, when He's talking to Nathaniel, He actually refers to this about Himself. Yes, we should tell tell you that, listeners. If you don't know, this Jacob's ladder, as it's called, comes up. A couple of times. Yep, it does. Yeah, and it's quite important, which is why we're talking about it today. Yep. Hopefully we're – I know Rowan's giving you <laughs> insight, <laughs> but let me see if I can come up with something. Yeah, come on, Jean. Some you can do it. <laughs> question. Oh, you spent enough time studying. You've got something. Oh, no. Um, and here Jacob replies, what an awesome place. Yes. Uh, it's none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. Yeah. So we all, from previous podcasts we've talked about that there – is a separation between heaven yep. and earth. But here we see a gateway. This is the touchdown point. There's a gateway. Yep. There's a way to heaven. Yes. We don't yep. quite know exactly what that is. In this case, there's some kind of stairway and there's angels. There's, there's a unification of heaven and earth at this point. As the picture I'm seeing is that angels are leaving the heaven and coming to earth and back and forward. So this is definitely a joining point. Spiritual beings and joining on the earth. Okay. And then the next morning he gets up and he pours oil over that rock. Yep. And he names the place Bethel, which means, as you said, house of God. Yep, Bethel. 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 We say Bethel, but it's Bethel. Bethel. Yeah, okay. And Hebrew. then Jacob makes this really interesting vow. Yeah. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and, he will prov- and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Is he testing God here? Oh. Or, and I, I looked up this word, if. Yeah, yeah, tell me. Because yeah. when we read this, we say, oh, if only God was. Yeah. But I actually think it's more, it should be read as when, when God will be I with me right. and protect me and when he will provide me. So if you read it as the if, it's a question. Yeah, like it, But call. if you read it as the when, it's actually a step of faith and yeah. a belief that this is going to happen and that... Um, he will return safely to yeah. the father's home. So it's a statement of faith um, as opposed to a question. A question, a test, if a you test. will. I, I, that's how I read it too. I actually, it reminds me of, uh, there was a song by Elevation Church. We've sung it a few times at church over the years where it says, um, Lord, will you meet me here again um, in, in your presence? Will you meet me here again? And I actually had someone say to me once, I don't like that song. Because it's asking the question, will you meet me here again? And I said, that's interesting. I'm not reading, I'm not I'm actually thinking of the lyrics of that song exactly like this. It's not like, God, will you, please? It's actually a statement of faith. Lord, meet me in this place. Meet me in this moment. So I think, it is, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's not a lack of faith or some kind of desperation. This is a statement. I've seen a vision. And God, when you come through for me, I'm going to come. I'm going to honor you in this place. Yeah, I love that, Jeannie. I think. Yeah. And, you know, I've found this a lot in my readings that the way if I just read them on face value, there's a lot more questioning rather than these statements. Statements. And I think when we read it, we miss a lot in the interpretations. Yeah. So we have to read it over and over again. Do, we, do again. we try any other versions? Did you try any others out of interest? Oh, yeah. I always read two or three versions. Yeah. I'm just versions. see whether or not any of the other versions actually pick up on it. And I've got in my notes here that we went on to 29, but we don't, do we? Oh, I had some, I had good questions for chapter 29. Oh, did you? Yeah. Shall we do a little bonus segment? No. 
<laughs> because we can talk for hours, Rowan. So okay. this is uh, Jacob meets, meets Rachel. I hope we are going to talk about that story at some point. Yeah, that, I had a lot of questions because there's uh, because what we do know is even though Jacob has this encounter with God in the next chapter, he he gets married, has loads of bunches of kids and stuff, uh, and then he's asked to return to his uh, to his hometown. Back, yep. But there's this point in it where he um it's revealed that he's allowed foreign gods within his family Mm. and i just want to say this now because when he encounters god it doesn't necessarily change his life instantly instantly there is a journey there is a step there are steps of faith there's learning along the way there's about six chapters of that in jacob's life yeah yeah you don't suddenly become this wow if you can hear that noise you can hear the rain rain on the roof some people would say it was the holy spirit but (laughs) i I don't (laughs) I don't know. Apparently he works in water. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, just making that point, this is a journey. Yes. Jacob's yep. life is a journey. Yep. And, and that should be encouraging once again to all of us. Just because we've had an encounter with God doesn't instantly mean that, well, maybe it should be, maybe it's discouraging. I used to say it'd be like, it'd be great if we could just flip open our head and have our brain scrape, scrape clean and suddenly think think all godly thoughts and behave all godly ways. But that's not that's not life. It's a process. No. Sanctification is a process. We should be encouraged by the fact that Jacob has to work at this. And it's his hardship and his suffering that actually brings that character out. And he's not unique in that. Moses went through it. Well, Abraham went through it. Mo- Jacob, Moses, David, Jesus. <laughs> Everyone. Every great. And there's numbers of uh, Ruth. There's numbers of women who had to go through that process. It, it's just... Uh, part of human nature everyone i like to say we're works in progress yes yeah and philippians 1 verse 6 paul says being confident of this that the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion so that he's saying god started something and i know he will complete it in you on the day of christ jesus because he remains faithful yeah that's right Yep. If it stops, it's not his. It's, <laughs> it's not him. It's not us. on him. It's not it's you. Not, it's, it's me. It, it's, no. it's, it's not. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's not me. It's you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a. It has to be a very very willful decision to turn our back on God, and that's a whole different argument about whether that can happen or not. But I think there, despite our wanderings, God is faithful, and He reaches down to us. Yeah. Like He did here with Jacob. I am doing this. Yep. You're not doing it. I am doing yep. it. And that's the way I think he works in yep. people's with lives. Adam and Eve. He came yeah. looking for Adam. Where are you? First question in the Bible. Where are you? Where are you? So, yeah, God's, God's always on the search for us more than we're searching for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Ephesians 1. Yeah. Well, I d- don't think I have any further questions because most of my questions are in 29, which oh, we're not even doing. Oh, oh, well. Hold them for when we are Hold them for the next time. All yeah. right. So if you're happy to move on, sure. we'll switch to... We're going to do Genesis 35. 35. Okay. We're going to actually discuss Genesis 35, which is what I had my notes on. I thought it was 29. So So we are okay. We are okay. We're all good to go. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what I talked about. But if you could just fill me in what happened between Genesis 28 and 35, where is Jacob at this point? Okay. So in... He's on his way. So he was in Canaan, which is modern day Israel, and he was heading back to where his father had, where his grandfather had come from, um, which was up sort of north in what would be modern day Syria. 
Payton Aram, um, and he was a part of a, a tribe that would be called the Arameans. That's where he originally came from. That's what they became later. So he had gone back to his uncle's house and had lived in his uncle's house for f at least 14 years by this time, probably more actually. Um, has to be more, I'd say, because it was seven years he, he served to be given Leah, and another seven years for Rachel, and then sometime after that they, they leave. So it could be 20 years or something he's served in that house. They talk about a long initiation process. A lot of character has to change in that 20-year period. And then the time comes for, he feels it's time to go back to back to Canaan again and so he, he after he's in that time he's he's got flocks that he's had for himself he's had um, he's got 12 sons and a daughter he's got he's become what was just one man with the shirt on his back has now become a whole family in Genesis 35. It actually doesn't say he wanted to go back. Doesn't Pastor say that no Rowan. I'm just yeah what it does it says, say? God, then says, God said to Jacob, Jacob it's time to go back. Yep. He didn't want to leave. Right. He was happy, well, happy-ish as he could be in this area. And, well, I think so because he, he actually leaves uh, 10 years after God tells him to go back. Okay. You've so done study it. Yes. So, so he's God's slow to obey. So you're saying he God told him to go back. It took him 10 years. 10 years. 10 years before. And then he has all the grief with the father-in-law. He doesn't obey. Then he has the grief. Oh, you, that's all news to me. I I've missed that. See, well, here we go. I've been reading this for, for years and I've never seen that. So that's... So I think I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, it's all right. I just, I need to think it through. So you're saying that 10 years in, he, God told him to go and he didn't go. Jacob wrestled, yeah, he wrestles with God. Or is that on the way? That's right. That's on the way back. He wrestles with God. All right. Well, there is a point where he... Oh, I wish I had it. Tell me the timeline and we'll just... You know, we won't try and solve it now because our listeners will be bored with us. But tell us the timeline as you understand it, and then we can do some research on it. It's all about sheep. There's a lot of sheep in this story. <laughs> it's the sheep. Uh, he ha remember he had to breed the sheep, yep. the different colours of the sheep. And yep. I didn't. Did God tell him to leave before that? Then the sheep problems happened. Yep. So, Oh, look, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that's what I was thinking. No, I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I, wanna, I don't want to hang you out to dry. I'm, I'm and then the father-in-law sort of turns against him. Yes. The father-in-law yeah. who has been supportive has now turned against yeah. him, doesn't want him to leave as yeah. well. Or Yeah. Laban, Laban does not want, uh, doesn't want to lose his daughters and his, his grandkids. So that's something, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think through how the story goes. So that's... Uh, you know, we'd have to go through all the different There's ones. a lot of chapters to flick over before yeah, I find before the you answer. Get there. Yeah, no, that's all right. Because oh, Jacob flees from, his wealth increases, Jacob flees from Laban. Yes, he has to get away from Laban because basically Laban's jealous of him, saying you've D Jacob's cheated him. I found it. Tell me what it is. Okay, chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father. 31 verse 3. And grandfather. And then... Then it's all the sheep. Okay. <laughs> there, that's right. Okay, so there and we then go. There's right, one, two, there's chapters there. God said it's time to turn away and he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Straight okay. away. He he lingered. Okay. And, uh, I, I love that. <laughs> I'm going to go and study that because there's, there's definitely a, a treasure in that, Jeannie. Because that was my question. Could he have avoided all the problems with his father-in-law if he obeyed? I wonder if first he could of all, have. And now he, he was fleeing from his brother and now he has to flee from his father-in-law. Yes. And in that, 
he's back at this point uh, where his life has gone a little bit bad. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, so I wonder if it, his unwillingness to to obey at that point is an issue. I think you're right. If, if that's the case and, uh, and God has said to him 10 years before, hey, it's time for you to go there and, you, and he didn't, well, it got pretty messy after that. Yeah, that's right, because he started cheating his father and his father-in-law started cheating him. Uh, Laban cheated him, changed his wages and did all kinds of stuff to him. And so he ended up, he was cheated by, by he had this agreement with his, um, with his, uh, his father-in-law. He said, um, whatever sheep are streaked or speckled or spotted, I'll take those. You can take all the pure ones. And it says that very day, as they made this agreement, Laban's father, Laban says to his other sons, hey, take all the speckled and spotted sheep and get them out of here. Yes, a lot of cheatery. A lot of cheatery going on. There's yeah. back and forward cheatery. But then going God on. blesses. God actually God increases, increases those anyone. sheep. Yeah. Okay, so the sheep happen, and then there's this terrible event uh, with Dinah. Does it yes. say Dinah, his yes. daughter? Right. Yes. Uh, yes, she is absolutely trigger warning, uh, abused, and um, that. So that's actually coming. That's, but we're uh, going backwards in time. We're just we trying are, to yeah. fill in this, what happened. Yeah, so this diner incident, though, this is after he has come back from the promised land. So, Well, here's a question then. Why would that appear in the chapter before? Yeah. Why does the Bible do that? Why does the Bible tell a story, then go back in uh, time or I go wonder, forwards and back? Okay, here's, here's, uh, here's my assumption on what's happening. And it, folks, we sound like we're all over the place <laughs> here because we, we haven't read the whole, all the chapters. My assumption is that Jacob leaves you're right because jacob and esau have made yes peace. they've already made peace so he's then, actually come back he spent some time in canaan yes you're and right after a, a period of time he's now going to honor that vow that he said yep that he would do so it's not like he went straight back to bethel it was quite common to for these people to say oh you know i now need to honor a vow i've made absalom did the same thing and well he was a bit deceptive in the process but that's it was like, the time has come for me to go back to Bethel and honour the vow that I made to God. But he's obviously been living back in Canaan for some time. This is all just fascinating. All right. <laughs> I think okay. we've confused everybody. Hopefully you're keeping up. If you're up. still with us and I haven't edited all this conversation all right. out because we're all over the place. But what? <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> yes. So God says, get ready, move, move back to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there. I'm reading in chapter 35. Yeah. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In, in verse 2, so Jacob told everyone in his household, get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves and put on clean clothing. So even though Jacob has had this encounter with mm. God, he's allowing these foreign idols. So... Mm. Yeah, just why? Um, I think there's a, the simplest answer to this issue is that syncretism, which was a blending of religions, uh, was always a major problem for God's people, for Israel. It was one of the biggest things, having foreign idols. And to, for Jacob to have this in his house is probably his way of, whether he was allowing it or whether that was just their understanding. I talked about this with Jeff recently. It's the limited understanding. God still works despite humans' frail understanding of, of, of religion. And I think in this case, these people are, are ancient Near East people, foreign gods, worshipping of foreign gods was very common to them. That's what they had known. All the nations around knew that. Jacob's family, I mean, his uncle are not 
they, his uncle's family that he's a part of, that he's in that area, they're worshipping foreign gods. So I think there's just this mix-up, this synchronized, synchro, think the word is syncretism, a mix-up mix of, of mixture of worshipping Yahweh and worshipping foreign gods. And, and now Jacob's saying it's time to get serious about honouring God. Even though if we remember in the previous chapters, chapter, when God says, I will be with you mm. always or mm. something like that, God has been with him, but Jacob has allowed this yeah. to happen. And here he's going back, he's remembering his vow. Yep. And he asks them to take to give yep. away their idols. Yep. So at this point, is this Jacob actually really staking a claim in God's promises? It, it could be. And um, is this when when the family give back their items, is this them converting? Okay, good question. I think the issue of what constitutes conversion is um, is hard to really know, especially in this context. If we read this through a a, a two thousand year old two thousand BC lens or whatever it is, probably sixteen hundred BC or seventeen hundred BC at this point, I think we need to just allow for the fact that these people are figuring out worship of Yahweh. It's very new to them. Abraham was the first one who God revealed himself to and, and so it's still very new. Whether or not it constitutes household conversion, I think that if in a patriarchal society, there was a sense in which if the patriarch converted, everybody in the household converted. And we saw that even in the New Testament, in, in, in first century Roman times, there was a sense of if the household patriarch converted to Christ, the whole family did, or the whole household, slaves and everybody did. But I think that's probably an oversimplification to say that that meant that every individual person had their own revelation with God. The house would probably live by those godly principles now. Um, but I think there's a tension there that you need to wrestle with. Just like if, just because a house wasn't converted to God doesn't mean that a, a, a member of that household may not have still had a faith. You, does that make sense? It does make sense. And it just makes me think as well, these are all the, f these are the family, the children that the blessings are going to come through. Yeah. So even though they've had these foreign gods God is still going to fulfill his promise yep. through these yep. children. Yep. Yep. Despite their strange worship of foreign gods. So God will work out his promise no matter what yeah. we do. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> you got it, Jeannie. I got it. Oh, I'm learning. <laughs> that's it. I think that's the point. Uh, so there's something else that I really took, I really noticed in this. Um, well, well, they're going to the house of God. Yep. Returning to this house of God. Maybe that's why they got rid of them. Yes, it's I think that's definitely like it's full on back to worshipping. Back to you. Yep. But interesting, they buried the idols. They didn't burn them. Which says to me. Yep. What does it say to you? Their idols are, I guess they're gold or they're valuable or something. They can then at some point return to them. They know where they're buried. They can mm. go pick them up and go get them again. Mm. So my answer to your question, which was my question, is this converting? No, this is them. Your this is answer them was an great, each way bet. but this is hedging their bets. If it doesn't work out at the house of God, I'm going to go back and pick up my, I, I reckon, my buried idols. I reckon that's a fair, it's a fair, uh, fair call. I haven't seen that before. Very good, Jeannie. But yeah. And God is still going to bless them, even though they, we don't know whether they went and picked them up. Yeah. But well, we, we certainly know that there was a lot of idol worship in Israel's history. It took an exile, uh, which is, you know, a thousand years after this, to get, to, to get the idolatry out of Israel. 
And idol worship hasn't really gone. We no. just it's converted into now. Well, what do you put before God? It's actually I the guess. same. It's actually the same thing. It's just the, the outworking of it. And it was statues and you know little things like your, little trinkets and stuff like mm. that that you see in even some religions today. But ultimately, all of them sum up in sex, money, and power. Mm. Um, and that's still the idols that people worship today. And how often when God asks us, like, can you get rid of that thing? How often do we just go and bury them? Bury, the, bury it rather than put it to death. Yeah. Oh, yep. dear. So much to think about. Yeah, good call. That's a good question. And Jesus would, you know, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh through a relationship with Jesus. Yep. If by the Spirit you'll put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So you need the Spirit of God to help us to do that. I love your pastoral answers. <laughs> That's well, so good. Oh, thank you. Okay, so here, uh, God actually affirms him twice by appearing here, right? God appears, where is that verse? God appeared to him in verse 9. Yep. Saying, this is heaven coming to earth. It doesn't say God said to him. God appeared to him. Yep. Heaven on earth again. That yep. connecting point. That Eden moment. Is when he came from Padre, he blessed him and God said to him, your name is Jacob. Yep. Oh, yours says God said. Mine says God appeared. Okay. Well, anyway. No, yeah, no, it does. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob God appeared. Again. And yep. then he said, your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. Yep. So God named him Israel. And then he, and then God goes on to talk about who he is. Mm -hmm. He says, I am El Shaddai. Mm -hmm. I love the sound of that. El yeah. Shaddai. God Almighty, yep. be fruitful and multiply. Sorry, haven't we heard that before? We have heard that. Where have you heard that, Jeannie? Oh, I think I might have heard that in some place called Eden. Yes, yeah. it was in Eden. There you go. In it's the creation, I yep. should say, the it's creation the story. creation story. And you will become a great nation. And I will give you this land and your descendants. So he, Jacob doesn't just get the promises of God. He gets two appearances of God. Yeah. I don't think I've ever even had one appearance no. of God, but anyway. No. <laughs> he gets two. Yep. <laughs> this guy, he gets twice and it's it defines him from this moment on yeah. because his name has changed, which yeah. which meant weakness. And now Israel, which means what? Israel. But what does it mean? Um, Israel means, oh, that's uh, Oh, I know. Tell me what Israel means. It says, which means wrestled with, wrestled God, with God or persevered with God. Yeah. Because a few chapters before, he yeah. literally did wrestle with yeah, God. correct. Right, yeah. okay. That's another story from another yeah. time. Yep. And, and God renamed him Israel back in that story. He's just reiterating. Reiterating. Yeah. Okay. That Israel means to struggle with God and prevail. And it implies strength. Yes. Yeah, it, imp it implies that. Yet, he's told his new land, strength, all these things, yet he's, he's still wandering the land. Mm -hmm. And I've got to note here, he's in grief because he's just recently buried his wife. Yeah, Rachel's just died. Yep. His, his wife that he uh, very well, much loved. Ra Ra actually, Rachel's die, about to oh, die after this. Oh, no, the, the nurse. Yes. Ra yeah, his the nurse, nurse had previously that died. He'd which is a nurse a who time. nursed him since he was a young boy. When he, so, yeah, exactly. So he's dealing with grief and he's told the promises are affirmed again. So God is meeting him for the second time yeah. in a sad place yes. in his life. Well, that's a good thought that it's in his crisis moments that his God crisis turns moments. up. See, I've not seen that, Jeannie. Great. Good thought. 
good thought. I might have read it somewhere. Doesn't matter where you read <laughs> no, it. No, I didn't. I we, didn't actually. Most of it we just figure it ourselves yeah. by learning from others. So whatever. That's great thought though. That God shows up in his crisis moments. In his crisis. In his grief moments. In, his, in his grief moments. And oh, that's because we're about to... Oh, wait, there's another thing. He poured wine over where the original rock yep. was this time and there was an offering to God and he anointed the pillar with olive oil. Yep. I'm going to ask you about anointing when sure. we get to Exodus. Exodus, and uh, Exodus I'm not going to sure. ask you that now. But that, you've got to realise this practice is already there, you know, yes. in this time. Yep. Yeah, okay. anointing with oil, pouring oil. So we go on and we have uh, the birth of his youngest son. Yep. Benjamin. Benjamin, which results sadly in the death of his wife, yeah, which was Rachel. sadly very, very common in that era. You know, it's actually still common. It's still common. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And there's the name, the baby, she names him Ben Oni, which means son of, son my, of my sorrow. sorrow. And the baby, and then, sorry, Jacob then changes the name and calls him son of my right hand. Mm. There's a lot of name changes in the Bible. Mm. Why? Names don't mean as much to us, although there's a bit of a renaissance of that, I suppose, among uh, young parents these days wanting to find the names of their kids um, or the meaning of the names of their kids. But in those days, it meant so much more. In ancient times, in ancient cultures, an, a, name was, um, a name was believed to actually have incredible power over that person's destiny. And so uh, when you, and it makes sense even to take the spiritual aspect out of it, even just a, a natural sense, if someone knows the meaning of their name and that's being spoken all the time to them and they're speaking it, then that's going to shape your culture. It's going to shape people's perspective of you and all of that. So even at a, a purely sociological level, it's going to have the power to change, let alone whether there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. And so God would often change a name to change the meaning like he did with Jacob into Israel or Abram into Abraham or Sarai into Sarah. And in that case, Abraham and Sarah, all he did was insert the in the <laughs> middle of it, which is actually the spirit, the Ruach, which is a previous yeah. series. So he inserted yep. the spirit into the name. So it changed and brought changed meaning. So that's why names are important in this culture. Does it also mean a creation moment as well? I'm creating you into a new yeah, being. Exactly. Which Jacob, I think is no longer new Israel. New, new Israel. Creation. Yep. And I think that's that Abraham and Sarah specifically is the Ruach, one of the creative forces of God's spirit, one of the you know meanings of purposes of God's spirit as it's displayed as breath and creation is that creation, new creation. So yes, to put that into someone's name was God's spirit breathing new life into them. And that's what he does with Abraham. That's what he does with Jacob. Uh, he gives him a name. It's a new creation. It's a new birth. We've, how we've changed in life because I think if I saw a kid, I don't know, and their name was Wisdom, I, I think that would be the one thing they lack. You know? <laughs> you're calling <laughs> so, your kid Wisdom. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, that's just my negative No, input but there. you're right. It does show that this is a cultural practice that we have to park our mindsets and think about from their perspective where they deeply believed that names had incredible power. Mm. And God is interested in changing people. Yes. With yeah. relationship with yep. him, new name, yep. new change, yep. new beginning. There's one guy called Jabez in the Old Testament. It says he named him Jabez because his mother gave birth to him in pain. His name meant pain mm. and sorrow. So imagine going through life. Doesn't hey, pain. he do bad things? No, Jabez. Jabez no, Jabez actually had incredible faith. Okay, wrong person. Wrong person. No, <laughs> Jabez actually said despite his name, 
he believed in the Lord of the Lord God and the Lord blessed him. So he's a he's a he's a, con, a conundrum. He's a breaking of the rule because God blessed Jabez through his prayer. The Lord he prayed, "O oh Lord, that you would bless me indeed, and that you would enlarge the territory that you give me, etc., etc." And it says, "And God honored that request." So he was a he was a break from the norm by embracing it and um, defying his destiny that was based on his name. But it does show that names were seen to have incredible destiny and they were well thought after and well, it was a good choice. Even Jesus being called Yeshua was on purpose. The name Joshua means, which is what Yeshua is, means God saves. So the Spirit made sure that he was getting the right name. So there's hope there for my little wisdom. There's hope for little wisdom. <laughs> Could be yeah. the yeah. wisest person in the world. <laughs> Shout out to my, my good friend Adam and Shu Bear, who used to be with us at Picton. Oh, they don't have a wisdom, do they? No, they have honour and justice. Honour and justice. Because yeah. he's police detective and honour and justice. But since they've named their kids honour and justice, those names are no longer allowed to be used in Australia. They've been banned. As I did know that names. about justice. I didn't know that yeah. about honour. Yep. Because right. they're, they're legal terms, but these guys got in early. Hey, okay. honour and justice. <laughs> Okay, so continuing on this chapter, it gets really, really weird. Uh, that's not uncommon for the Bible. Things get weird. And we learn a little bit about the sons Yep. here. And we learn that the eldest son, Reuben, sleeps with Jacob's concubine. Oh. I didn't even know Jacob had concubines. Yeah, he had, so Jacob had two wives. Oh, and then he had the maidservants. Oh, what a heck of a problem he's yeah, got. It's a screwed up family. Yeah. <laughs> Mega screwed up family. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. husband has trouble managing me. Yes, <laughs> How right. would he do yeah, with four wives? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, uh, what was I saying? I can't remember. The sons, there's just a mention of the sons, and then yeah. uh, finally he returns to his father. Mm-hmm. And this is, this in verse 29, it says, uh, the father, Isaac, breathed his last and died at a ripe old age, joining his ancestors. But this actually happens a lot later, right? This is, again, one of those points in the Bible where there's a lot of time happening between two little verses. And in fact, the chapters go on as if he's alive, right? I don't know, but... uh, but Or am I thinking... Oh, no. I'm not sure if it does or not, but that's not that uncommon, even if it does, because, yes, there's there's not... They're not really as emphatically reliant upon chronological order as we are. We think an no. historical account requires chronological order. They ar- we arrange things chronologically. Uh, the ancients in the New- Near East especially, that's very much a Greek mindset, European mindset, but the Middle East and ancient Near East were more interested in arranging things um, in flow of thought rather than chronological order. And that's why sometimes you read something and think, oh, that looks like it's out of context. It's because they're not worried about chronology. They're worried about consistency of thought but that's very much our western mind though how we approach things when it's meant to be in that logical yep. order and in that would be good to know before yes. we read the bible it that would sometimes well, you're out timings now you didn't know. out yeah. of order now, if you come from a um an asian culture if you listen to this and you come from an asian culture I, I my understanding is that certainly ancient asian culture was that was very much that way. Eastern as opposed to Western thinking was very much uh, order of thought. I'm not quite sure whether that's still the case in, say, modern technological Asian cultures such as Korea and Japan, where there is a, probably a Western influence now. But, but yeah, Eastern, Eastern mindset's very different. There's a flow of thought, which is kind of like beginning, middle, beginning. Things are c- cyclic and, and go back on themselves rather than beginning, middle, end. 
got it. That's how, and I have had to rework that, how I read yes. this. Yeah. yeah. And one last thing I want to note on this chapter is just going back to the grief. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I, I kind of go through so quickly, but it's worth actually stopping and thinking about the grief in this chapter that he, that Jacob is going through with these two deaths. Yep. And it just humanizes it a bit yeah, more. Yeah. This is, this is real loss and you're right. We need to allow for that pain and the reality of that, that sh we can't underestimate how loss shapes us in life. It's a big part of our character development. And if you've been through or are going through loss or grief, you can't short circuit that process. It's as much as we want to. And as much as people are trying to create artificial intelligence and hope that maybe we, 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 you know, we can live forever or maybe we can revisit our loved ones, I think there's a problem there because uh, we're not created for loss. We're created for eternity, but we live in a fallen world and we still do and are shaped by loss. And while we are shaped by it and we're living in it, God reaches down, he appears and he yeah. reminds us of his promises yep. and who we are and also that there is a future. Yeah. And we I mean, see so that happening. So many, so many scriptures, so many prophets speak with that mentality. Jeremiah speaks to a people that are doing it tough. The book of Revelation is written to a church that's suffering and it's a promise of one day I'll wipe away every tear. So God reaches down into human suffering, meets us at that point and promises us and reiterates to us hope. He's good like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a master of that. Okay, I have nothing further, no further questions. Okay. All right, so we'll move on to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, hey? So we're picking up on Exodus 20. Bum, bum, the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. It's a great movie, by the way. It is. The original Charlton Heston special. So, <laughs> just tell me, where is Moses here? He's received, we, everybody has heard about the Ten Commandments. Just where is Mo So, we've skipped from Jacob. We're in Moses. Yep. And Moses is on the top of a mountain. Yes, correct. Okay. What's around him? What's around Moses? Yeah. At like the he, top of the mountain? The top of the mountain, he's experiencing God, God with him or is this yes, one of these heavenly he is, moments? This is, a, this is a heaven on earth moment. It's a heaven this on is, earth This moment. is an Eden moment. This is a Bethel moment. So on the top of this mountain, the presence of God described as coming down in thunder and lightning and storm and fire and cloud and all those scary things. And people are looking up at this mountain and they're seeing that Moses has disappeared up the mountain and disappeared into this cloud of glory or whatever it is. So the picture you're supposed to get is that the people on the ground are looking up and this, they know that this is a point where heaven and earth are touching. And I think we've talked about, you know, that's, this isn't unique to Judaism, this, this whole concept of mountaintops being the experience of God where, the God, where the gods or God meets earth is not unique to Judeo-Christian. It's, it's across all religions. It's this sense of that's that top of that mountain. In ancient times, it's not easy to get to the top of a mountain. So it's, it's like the domain of the gods. And so this is a purely a heaven and earth moment. This is, this is God touching down on earth with a people and meeting and, and about to institute a new set of principles by which his new nation that he is appointing will live. He wants them to live by these principles, these, these um, commandments, should use the word 
commandments. That's what it is. And just before this, just to fill in in case you don't read it, because I know there's a lot of people who don't read their Bible. Yeah. <laughs> no judgment. Just <laughs> this is why we're here. Just yeah, yeah. To, to fill you in before this, uh, they the they're many years before, forty years before, they have had the Red Sea. No, this is this is straight after the Red Sea. What? Yes, this is not forty years later. That's the book of Deuteronomy. This is. This How did is, I get that wrong? Yeah, got that wrong. You see that? This is, yeah. I'm learning new things. No, is this it is really. Yeah, yeah. Mount Sinai is within the first year. They build the tabernacle within a year. I think it's it's virtually a year to the day after they come out of Exodus that they open up the tabernacle. Oh, I sorry. I know where I'm getting confused here. I'm jumping to my questions on the tabernacle. On the tabernacle, which is <laughs> after that. Okay, yeah. but. This is very early on. This, this is early this on. This is in the early days after they've come out of... Um, Before they've been the in the wilderness. Yes, this is in, yes. so they, what happened is that they'd been enslaved by Pharaoh. God had done the whole Exodus plagues thing, the plague of the firstborn, the Passover. They'd come out, been sent out of, out of Egypt. They had passed through the Red Sea, been protected, and then they're in the desert. They find themselves on the other side of the Red Sea at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then this story happens in that time when they're parked at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, and there will, be, there will be explanation in there as to how long this is afterwards somewhere. Um, and I think it, in the number, numbers, it records the wanderings of that, how, where they spent their 40 years. But, but unless I'm mistaken and I have to do my homework on it, this is very early on. Within, I, would, I would think within a month or two of the Exodus, Moses finds himself on Mount Sinai. Wow, okay. Days. And they're entering into a covenant relationship. Yes. What's that? Um, an oversimplification of the word covenant is agreement. Um, if you do this, I'll do this. That's essentially, it's an agreement of two parties. That is an oversimplification. It's a contractual arrangement. Um, that's probably the nearest thing we have to it. But um, it was it was more than, than that. It was in a sense that if there's a covenant arrangement, it's there. There are different kinds of arrangements. One where there is a, there is a, well, the one covenant where they're peers. The two parties are peers. There's another one which is called a vassal arrangement, where one of them is a superior to the other one. And so they might enter into a covenant that says, where the superior one will say, if you do this, if you pay my taxes, for instance, you pay me taxes, I promise that I, if I'll come and defend you, I'll look after you. So there is a, a vassal kind of arrangement there. So this is a, this is an agreement between God and his people. And th is this why he makes the Ten Commandments? If you do these Ten Commandments, I will do this. Um, Which we kind of know not to be true. Because yeah, he still I'm, does I'm, act yeah, yeah, anyway. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that... that um, but is that what they would be thinking? I, I think there's probably a sense in which, yes, God is trying to set himself up set up a brand new nation and he's about to give them the terms of engagement, their constitution, if you like. This is like, you know, the American constitution or the Australian constitution. This is their guidelines for their national identity. And God is saying, if you're going to be my people, this is what, and I will be your God. This is what I expect of you. This is the kind of people that I want you to be. Yeah, I, I think that's a fairly likely assumption that that's what they're thinking. Okay. Then that's good to agree. Yeah. <laughs> and I just notice here that as we're thinking about creation, as God spoke the world into existence, he speaks these commandments mm -hmm. over his created people. Mm -hmm. And most people do know them. Uh, I'll just 
briefly go through. I am the Lord your God who rescued you. You must not have any other God before me. You mustn't make an image for yourself an idol of any kind. Uh, you mustn't misuse the name of God. And remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Is it? Oh, and then we'll continue on. And then honor your father and mother. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. No, most of them. I, what I noticed this time reading around was something that I should have, should have noticed. Was that the first five are about your relationship with God. And the rest are about your relationship with your neighbour. I thought it was four and six. Four and six, whatever. I'm yeah, terrible you, at maths. You're absolutely right. He's oh, love well, God and love your neighbour. No, yes. because honour your father and mother is also how you honour God. Okay. Yep. Yep. So we'll say it could be four and six, five and five. Five and five, four and six, yeah. I think I, w- I would say that, yes, honouring your father and mother is honouring God. Um, but I would think of it as a relational. All of those others from, from uh, six, the, the last six are all, I would think, t- are largely related to human relationships. Whereas the first three plus Sabbath, um, some scholars actually say it's three, one, five, three, three, one, six. They separate out Sabbath, but uh, I don't necessarily presume to be an expert on that. But I think those first, I would think it's, f- say, f- it's fair to say the first four are about our relationship with God. The remaining six are about well, their relationship with each other. And because what I thought about that was relationship with God, relationship with people, heaven, earth. Mm, mm. It's a mix of the two. We yeah, have to yeah, think great. in the heavenly realm and good we're also thought. thinking in the earthly realm. Yeah, good thought. So that when we're obeying these commandments, we're kind of existing in the two worlds. Yeah, wow. Wow, Jeannie, that's really good. I like that. Oh Where did you come gosh. up with that idea? That one was Holy Spirit. That was a Holy Spirit <laughs> revelation. I think that's I profound <laughs> that you can't have the earthly relationship without loving the Lord your God. So there's that touch of heaven. So you, let me... say what I think I'm hearing you say Um, are you saying that as we honor God in those first four commandments if you like as they honored God in those first four commandments that put them in touch with heaven and therefore as they lived out those that relationship with heaven it would play out in the last six commandments it would be bring be bringing heaven to earth is that what you're saying yes yes (laughs) I like it (laughs) But You've it, heard it, it here first, <laughs> folks. I don't think I've ever heard that, but that's brilliant. Oh, no. But it was because I was really thinking about when Jesus comes, when he says, he expands yeah, on he it. He expands on it. Exactly. And he talks about most important commandments to love the Lord your God and to yep. love your neighbors. He's actually saying, five. well, I saw it as five and five. Yeah. Yep. And he, he is. I, I agree. I think that's what he's saying. I, just, I think the four and six works for me, but, but yes, that's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is quoting, I think it's Deuteronomy that actually says that. So there is a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, I think, that says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is quoting that and saying all the law and the prophets is summed up in this. Um, but it's very clear to me, uh, having heard you say that. I, I've been aware of the whole first ones about, first four about God, the rest are relational before, but I don't think I've ever linked that with the heaven and earth mentality, which is brilliant because we cannot live, it fits with the whole, our theology as Christians. We cannot live... Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, without one, two, three, four, five, to use what That's you're saying. Right. And I also thought, I realized that these commandments are universal. Mm-hmm. And, and in that statement, all people have broken them. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and it doesn't matter what nationality you are, these still apply to you. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Right. Does that make sense? Because it's like in every culture, you should honor the Lord your God. So he's not speak. It's not just for the Israelites here. It's going further. These laws, these I commandments, think these principles spread apply out to all the nation. To all, all the, the nations. nations. That said, how we, how that plays out, I think, is warrants some thought because remember, God is giving it to His covenant community. These are He's He's initiating. He's not giving these principles to the Canaanites. He's not giving these principles to the Egyptians. Uh, he's giving them to a new new nation through which his blessing is going to be to the nations. So I mentioned this to Jeff last recently. I, I heard Tim Mackey say, and I've never thought about it before, uh, and the story of God is like an hourglass turned on its side. And uh, God's original plan was for the whole, uh, all of creation. And But if you think about the story, all of creation wandered against God. And so God narrowed his plan down into a nation, Israel, and down into a line, David, and down into a man, Jesus, and then from Jesus, he opens up his plan of salvation to all the nations again. So I, the reason I'm saying that is I think while it's true that these Ten Commandments are God's principles for life for all humans, in this context, he is giving these commandments to one nation. Yes, you're right about that. Yet what we'll go through later on is that his God's plan as you just sort of said to, was to go out to yes. everybody. Yeah. So he's not making commandments that a certain culture in, I don't know, some tropical place yep. can't can't live by. Can't live by. Yeah. He, but I think what he is saying is he's got, his plan is always that Israel would be the people who would represent God to the nations and the nations to God. They would be a priestly or a kingdom of priests. And so it was, it was the fact that, Israel was should have lived by these commandments and should have lived with these standards. Had they done that, that would have been incredibly attractive and they would have actually represented God to the nations. They failed to do that. And how would they have been attractive? It's I think it's in the way it plays out. Yeah, because love exactly don't these, murder. these principles are the opposite this, this is upside down kingdom principles. This is Jesus' principles. This is different to kill and be killed. Uh, you know, you know, win at all costs. Well, they're sort of anti-human because we, <laughs> like, I mean, it's not our natural nature. Yeah. Our natural nature is to sort of steal, yes. kill and destroy, yes. I yes. think, um, yeah. which sort of history yeah. proves that I we're actually bad think people. It's anti-human, but in another way, this is actually truly human. This is actually who we are created to be. This is what we are capable of. Yes, yes, but no, you're right. This does that is, make sense? This yes. is the true human. Yep. What we do is actually a flawed, the way we live our lives and kill and be killed and steal and define what's right for ourselves and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all that. That's actually not human. That's, that's beastly. I talked about this with Jeff too. That's the beast. Uh, I have to listen Daniel. to this, to Jeff. You've yeah, re Jeff, mentioned him a lot. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, you will, you will have listened to it by the time you listen to this one. Because but I'm going to listen to all, all the episodes well, of the podcast. But yeah, so whenever you see analogy to beasts in the Bible, Daniel's vision of beasts and sin is a beast. And so this actually, humans at their worst become beasts. But God's intention is that true humans live this way. They live Ten Commandment life. They live so a life God that has, loves God and loves others. So he has good plans for us. Yes. Great plans above and beyond yep. our natural nature, the way that we default, yep. yeah, I suppose. Yep. So this is his dream. This is almost this, God's dream. This that is God's we would, ideal plan. Ideal his plan. for humans. Yep. Okay, I just have a couple of questions about it. Because yep. that was, you know, a 
serious conversation. But uh, why was God so explicit in not making an image of him? Uh, because we, um, in the, the biblical account, is that humans, if you go to Genesis 1, we are the image of God. So all ancient religions, they, um, they created images um, of the God, and that image was often um, an idol, and that was said to represent the presence of God um, in that temple. So all ancient temples had idols in the temple, and that was they'd dress up the idol, they'd do all that sort of stuff to them, and that was the... That was the point. That was the, that was the Bethel, if you like, of that God. It was the touchdown point of that God. But there was no idols in, in Israel's temples because humans were supposed to be the image of God. We were created to represent him and be his image and his mark. So for us to, to create an image was to forego our humanness, was actually to deny our own humanness, our own image bearing, and translate that onto something else. It's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've always thought that it had something to do with well, well, that. But also, if we made something to represent him, we would be missing out. Like we would limit him. We would miss the full character of God because we couldn't possibly grasp him. That's true too. Uh, God says to Solomon, or Solomon says when he initiates the temple, he says the highest heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain God. So yeah, that is true. Um, that we limit God, we limit him. But I actually think that it's probably more so, more so the fact that we are dehumanizing ourselves. We are, um, we're putting other, we're handing over our God-given authority to spiritual beings, if you like, which is what those idols often were. Paul says, you, when you offer food to idols, you're offering it to demons. So there's a, there's a spiritual force behind that that you're transferring your designated authority over to. And that's why God was saying, stick, you must have no other, no other gods and you must have no idols. So he's pointing us back to Eden here. Yes, this is back pointing to Genesis 1. Yep. Okay. And yep. there's something special about us. Yeah, that's made right. Made in, in his image. Yeah. And oftentimes in on these ancient cultures, the, the person who claimed to be the image, if, if any human being would claim to be the image of God, it was the king because then they could claim power and control and abuse their subjects and all that sort of stuff. And the narrative of God's story in Genesis is supposed to be a parody on the narratives of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians and all those around that had that narrative where the image belonged to the king who was like regarded as God in the flesh. And along comes Moses in, this, in the Genesis, Exodus story, in the Torah, and he's saying, no, 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 all humans are the image of God, not just the king. All of you should treat each other respectfully. All of you should uh, live by the Ten Commandments because you are all equally the image of God. And if we live by the Ten Commandments, we can actually see God. Yeah, I agree. Yep. We, can, we can see God in our lives and yeah. bring God him. into other people's lives. Yeah. It's, it's, there's so much in that. Um, I'm just going to ask a few more questions. Go for um, it. What does it mean when God describes himself as jealous? I don't think this is a quick ah, answer, but right. what have you got? Um, One minute. What does, it just, what does it mean? I don't know. Um, God is jealous. Jealous for our I, I'd affection, have to think attention. That, I'd have to think that no. I, I'd have to think that it, that, that it would be a misuse of the word to say God is jealous for our attention. We think of jealousy as a... As a, as a bad thing, don't we? Yeah, you know? we do. Um, and so I'd, I'd want to do some research on that, but I suspect it's more he's jealous for our sakes rather than he's jealous for his own sake. 
He's going, I, I want you to experience the fullness of what I have for you. And if you don't honour me, you're going to miss out on the fullness of what I have for you. So I'm jealous for your sake. Wow. That would just be off my, I could be completely off base there. I can see how that there. makes sense. Yeah, I could be completely off base. But I think to say that God's jealous and, uh, and actually that sets him up in the way all the other gods are that they are some kind of power-hungry egotists. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that's, the, that's not the that's God not of the Bible. The so then when I'm faced with that, I have to confront it in the light of all of Scripture. be worth so doing some research on yeah, it. Yeah, and it's worth also thinking about words like that when we read them, mm. that the way we interpret it now is not the way it's meant to be interpreted. Yeah, yeah I think so. And that's probably something scholars and, and translators have wrestled with, the meaning of that, whatever the Hebrew word is there for jealous. But I can see it in the point that he's created us for a relationship with him. Yeah. And we go off and we do other things and he is jealous for our sake, as you mm. say. Like if yeah. you maintain this relationship, there will be blessings. Yeah. But you're missing out. You're missing out. And, and I, it's I'm not hurting because you're and He's hurting that we're missing out. And he's hurting because he wants relationship with us. So I, I don't think we should water that down either. God desperately wants relationship because he is yeah. at his core, Father, Son and Spirit are unified, but they want to share that loving relationship with their mm -hmm. creation. So I think there's another aspect of jealousness, not jealousness in a selfish way, but, but there's a deep longing. You know, as a parent, you're deeply longing for your kids to, to have relationship with you. I think that that would be a, a valid without somehow degrading God into a a jealous person who just uses other people for his own personal gain. And when you compared, you, know, you didn't really compare, but you mentioned other gods. Like, uh, we think about the Greek gods of Zeus and those sort of things. Um, how different this God is because he tries over and over again, as we read in multiple books, of him reaching out, yeah. heaven coming to earth, yep. uh, trying to reconnect us to him. Yeah, yeah. Whereas they didn't do that. Did no, they? no. In fact, if I, like I've read Homer's Odyssey and Homer's Iliad, great entertainment. I, li I, li I read them, listened to the audio version of them before I went to Greece last year. Fantastic entertainment, but just the, the capriciousness and the <laughs> and the um, you know malevolence and the and the childishness and the selfishness of these gods that would they used they f used humans as a playground f to fight against one another and they jump sides and. And they play them off against one another. It's just so different to the nature of the God of Israel. Yes. In, where in our weaknesses and in our grief, he still is present. Absolutely. He's working through us, yeah. creating a new being. Yeah. And uh, I love here that mentioning the Sabbath day in the, in the Ten Commandments because is it really there just to remind us of Eden, which ultimately reminds of us, us of our relationship with him? Right. Well, that probably begs into a, a bigger question and scholars will argue with this, um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists will say, look, we should be honouring the Sabbath. And, and uh, so this begs the bigger question, which, and the Sabbath is the one that brings it to the surface. Should Christians obey the Ten Commandments? I don't know if you had that in your questions or not, but that is... Uh, nope. No. Okay. So that's, that's actually one of the most common questions about it. Should, should we, we obey, obey the, the Ten Commandments? Well, you would assume so, right? Why would you assume so? Well, because what I said, the points before, right. it's, it's honouring God and yeah. it's a loving man. It's yeah. heaven and earth connection. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's the way I am told I should be loving yeah. towards people. Yes, correct. So what happens is Protestants will say, no, a lot of Protestants will say, no, you don't obey the Ten Commandments because you can't obey the Ten Commandments, right? Well, we break them all. And we break them all. And Jesus even says, if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of breaking them all, right? So the problem that Jesus was rebuking in his time was that they were trying to obey the commandments as if when to obey them by the letter of the law was sufficient. And Jesus says, hey, 
you say do not murder, which is in the Ten Commandments, he actually says, no, no, if you, he, he digs deeper to the spirit behind that law and he says, the reason the do not murder is there is to show you that even if you're angry, you've committed murder in your heart. So we've all done that. So we're all, we're all lawbreakers. So that's, you can see the tension as to why people say, well, can we, should we try to obey the Ten Commandments or not? I actually think they are good principles to live by. I really do. I, while, all the way, while aware that without God's empowerment, I can't live that way. But they are a sum total of what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor, to live a life that, that um, honors others and puts others before yourself, puts God first and puts others before yourself. And so I think the answer is yes, we should aspire to live by these Ten Commandments. However, I would say we should be aspiring to live by the spirit behind those Ten Commandments, the purpose and intention of those Ten Commandments, as opposed to some kind of 10 box checklist that oh, okay, I've never murdered anybody, I've passed that test, or I've never committed adultery, I've passed that test or whatever, because um, that leads to self-righteousness which is what he was talking to the Pharisees about. And also the opposite is true. What happens to someone who has committed adultery? Uh, does that mean you're blown it forever? Well, Jesus clearly shows that's not the case because Jesus forgives and Jesus extends grace even to sinners. So let's not become self-righteous about obeying the Ten Commandments, but let's look and desire to abide by the spirit and intention of those Ten Commandments. And so back to your question about Sabbath, should we obey Sabbath? I would say there's a principle in Sabbath that is important to us. So when it says, remember to observe the Sabbath, I'd be going, well, what are the principles behind Sabbath that I need to learn? And you'll find those principles mapped out through scripture. Trust in God. You need a podcast on the Sabbath, I think. <laughs> Bible Project did a great series on the Sabbath. Okay, it's, well, it's a, go it's there. a huge yeah. theme, it's a, but it's a really inspiring theme. Uh, what I also like about the Ten Commandments is that I, by breaking them, I was going to joke and say it's fun. No, I'm not going <laughs> to joke. You actually hurt yourself yeah. in the end if you're stealing. That's ultimately wrong for you. It's going to hurt you. If yeah. you kill someone, you're going to hurt yourself. It actually, even though it is about your neighbor, it's also very much, it's personal. Yes, agreed. It's, it is personal. Um, it is, you will hurt, injure your own humanity by you'll become a beast by by breaking these commandments by living selfish selflessly selfishly rather than selflessly you are not living up to the your potential and so you're injuring yourself and injuring others in the process yeah true one thing i wanted to note here is that um it says honor your father and mother mm -hmm. a lot of people think that the bible is sort of anti-feminist but honor your father and mother mm -hmm. just just note that, mm -hmm. just saying nothing, yeah. nothing else. And uh, the first commandment with a promise, the only, yeah, it says yeah. if you do that, you will live a long, full life. You will live, yeah, yes. And did you have anything else to add about the Ten Commandments? I just wanted to make sure we touched on that whole question and re re wrestle with the ethics of whether or not we should obey them. And look, we only just touched on it. It's a much more in-depth argument and scholars have argued about that. So I don't want to be hard and fast, but I know that after my own research and conscience, that's where I've come to this point where I go, these are good principles by which I should seek to live, provided I seek to live by the spirit behind them. We do get caught up in the Ten Commandments, so much so that we forget to discuss the uh, verses that follow, yeah, which are the case. very, yep. very interesting. Yep. So 
Moses is up there receiving these Ten Commandments, and down at the base of the mountain, the people are hearing thunder yep. and loud and sorry and loud blasts of ram's horns, which yep. is who's from I don't know who that is, but there's flashes of lightning and there's smoke billing from the mountain, and while they're standing at a distance, they're actually trembling with fear. There's this real fear of God, like they're mm. afraid. Mm. Uh, they actually say to him, "You go." You say to him, "Be Moses. Yeah, you, you go, go speak to. Yeah, you go yeah. talk to God. We'll listen, but don't let God speak to directly to us, or we will die." Yeah. Here they're asking for a mediator. They mm. want somebody mm. between them and God. Mm. Why do you think that is? <laughs> well, I think the key is the word that appears a few times there: fear. Fear. Yeah. I think the implication as you read this is supposed to be that God was inviting them all. Uh, I know there is other... He did invite them all to come, didn't they? And then they said, no, no, no just you, Moses. Yep, yep exactly. And and then, then the perimeter gets put in place. Uh, and, you know, don't come beyond this perimeter or you, you'll be, you know, and then the, the sense of separation that takes place, this separation between between heaven and earth is exemplified in multiple ways. It's exemplified in the temple temple and the tabernacle and all of this, but there's this curtain or there's this barrier at the bottom of the mountain. There's a separation, but that's not God's intention. Fear creates that separation. But here it says, for God has come in this way to test you and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Okay, different kind of fear. Different kind of fear. I think yeah. that would be a different word in... Uh, the Hebrew sc- scholars. I don't know if it is or not. I'm not sure. But scholars argue about this too. What is the fear of God? Is fear of God some kind of fear of punishment from God, or is it some kind of awe of God? Or to revere Him? To revere Him. Um, and look, there are arguments that seem to indicate that it, it is genuinely a fear. Even Jesus Himself said, "You know, fear the one who has your power to throw you into hell." Not just, not just. So, so there is a sense of significance, understanding of God's power. That it sh- that should be a should have a, I think that should have some motivating factor to it. I think if we're only ever motivated by fear and not by God's grace or love for God, then we've, got, we've overstepped our boundary. But I, I do think there should be some sense of the awe of who God is, the reverence for who God is. And is that, is that, does that have a fear component to it? Maybe, maybe to some extent it does. Hmm. What's your opinion, listener? What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I think it's food worth wrestling with that. It is food yeah. for thought. And don't don't have to have a hard and fast opinion. Scholars argue about this stuff all the time. Well, there's a lot to argue about. There's there's so much so many interesting things yeah. in yeah, this whole there thing. Is in stuff in this. And uh I'm actually really interested in getting to the tabernacle. Should okay. We, Are we ready should to move go to the on? Tabernacle? Let's let's go there. Yeah, sure. So I'm just going to talk about here Exodus 25 and 26 at the same time. I think we should just yeah lump yeah it's it all together. the same topic. So let's put it together. It's the same topic, but I think really most people won't even read this. They'll just gloss over it because it can be quite boring. It's all measurements and blueprints. Measurements, blueprints, patterns. Yep. For this idea of a, t- a tabernacle, like a tent of worship. Yep. That God has asked Moses to create yep and it uh, from the reading it's sort of it's based on something that Moses is seen while he's on the mountain experiencing God talking to God in this heavenly moment God gives him this plan for a tabernacle mm-hmm. a meeting place 
where God says, I want to come and be with you. Yep. So God is in, his intention is heaven on earth. He's coming to you. Yep. He's made this covenant and now he wants to be among his people. Among his people. Yep. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You're going to say, should, what? No, no. no the Bible, wow. wait, what? That should be a revolution. Well, moment. it is a what moment. Why would God want to be yeah. with these people? These people are sinners. They're afraid yep. of him. They're, yep. uh, they keep wandering off, yeah, doing their own wandering thing. Wandering off. Yep. By sinners, I mean they um, have done terrible things. Well, they're about to do, they're about to have the golden calf episode. Yeah. yeah. And their hearts haven't necessarily been for him, but God is still saying, I'm coming down to you. And this is so interesting to me based on the fact that I have thought before that God is disgusted by sin. He doesn't want to have anything to do with humans. Mm. Uh, because they're so abhorrent mm, to him. Yeah. This he won't would look to at differ, us. wouldn't it? Yeah, he won't look at us until the blood of Christ is shed yeah. on us. But in fact, here he is saying, I'm going to come live amongst my people. Yep. Yep. This is new to me. Yep. <laughs> and that's not to say that there isn't practices that will need to take place in order to care for that Eden that they're about to create. There is you know, certain people who will have to have their hearts purified and there'll be a lot, a lot of symbolic stuff that will take place to honour God's presence among you. We can dishonour God's presence among us by uh, living selfishly. So there is an obligation on us to now respond to God's grace. God, by his grace, has not said, clean up your act, then I'll come. He's actually said, I'll come and I'll empower you to clean up your act empower you to clean up your act which is that whole grace thing again grace giving okay. us grace to yeah and you to, mentioned sorry go on no no go ahead you mentioned eden there mm -hmm. um and what we're going to find in this tabernacle is that a lot of the plans do reflect yep. eden yep all over it all over it all, eden is all over it and it uh it's even designed the way the outer courtyard to the inner courtyard and then the whole the the holy of the holies, holy. the most so there's holy place. Three yep. places. And if we think of the Garden of Eden, there's also places. There's the land. Yep. Then there's the Garden Eden. Yep. And then in the middle is, is the tree, tree of life. Yep. That's so right. there's the three places. Yep. Yeah. And You've done your research. It's great, Jeannie. And also just going to where Moses was standing uh, on the, the mountain, there's the people at the bottom. Yep. There we didn't mention it before, but there's the lead. This the leaders are in the middle. Yep. They haven't gone any further, and then Moses has to go up through a pillar of fire. Yep. So he's gone through. He's like, gone into the holy place, hasn't like he? Like a veil. He's gone into the holy place. So there's the three sections yep. in each of these things. Yep. The number three. Anyway, we won't get into that. Uh, but what we do find in Exodus 25 and Exodus 26 is God is very explicit yeah. in how he wants this tabernacle designed. Yep. All because he wants us to remember Eden. Yes. Right? To remember his creation, that he is the creator, yep. that he desires a relationship with us. Yep. You're supposed to think Eden when you read this. So God came down to heaven, okay, from heaven into Eden and here God is going to come down again into yep. this place. Yep. Even though there's been these thousands of years when yep. we've turned away from him, everything, he still desires a relationship yep. with us. Yep. So this should be huge. This is a daily reminder. Yeah. Good call. 
daily reminder to us that God wants to dwell with his people. And that's the final book of Revelation. Now it says, now the dwelling of God is with his people. That has always been God's intention. Beginning a book to end a book. And he does it here beautifully. This is a beautiful place. Yeah, and I should add, because we're going to talk about Eden there, but I should add that the writer to the Hebrews actually talks about the tabernacle as well and says the reason that it had to be so accurate is because these actually are a pattern of what it's like in heaven. So oh, yeah, because Moses has seen this. Yes. He's seen he's this seen pattern this. Yeah, of heaven. Yeah, that's I right. can't even comprehend no, no, what right. that is. So this is, this is intended to signify God's presence in heaven. And the reason it needs to be the same is because this is heaven meeting earth. So there needs to be a sense in which as imperfect as a tabernacle made out of even the precious stones and gold and all that sort of stuff is, it's still not perfect, but it's supposed to represent the glory of heaven on earth. And here in 20, uh, chapter 25, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. So there are people who are willing, who are mm, wanting to lots give. Lots of them. Yeah, and God is God seeking a heart that is moved for him? They're being asked here to, to bring uh, what they have to create this beautiful temple. Yep. And yep. there are just uh, accept the contribu- contributions from those whose hearts are moved. Yeah, which shows me that that principle applies to us today. God, remember it's partnership. God could have built a tabernacle on his own. He could have just gone, here, here's a temple. But he didn't. I mean, he did do that with Eden. He created the original Eden and then said, now it's over to you to make it look like this. And I think this, the point is here, he's saying, I want to come and meet with you, but now I'm asking you to contribute. To contribute, so in partnership, together we are going to be reminding each other of creation yep. and our covenant and yep. the purposes and intentions of, of God. Of heaven on earth. Of heaven on earth. Yep, that's it. And that same principle applies to us when we bring our offerings today. We do it in partnership with God. God could doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our stuff, but he's chosen to use us because he wants to partner with us. He doesn't want to just... Um, stamp himself upon the earth he wants to partner with humans to do that there's that great line i think it's in you two rattle and hum where bono says yeah the god i believe in isn't short of cash yeah that's exactly right <laughs> the god i believe it's in isn't short of hum. cash and yet he still cho- <laughs> yet and yet he still chooses to use us and he does here he says in verse 8 have the people of israel build me a holy sanctuary so i can live among them Word for word. That's what That's he says. What it's about. I'm coming to live among them, yep. my people. And it goes, the details here look are really boring unless you. Unless you want to really realize that each of these items that the tabernacle is made out of represent Eden. They do. And represent Jesus. They do represent, they do, and all those things. And there's a lot of number sevens. Yes, there's number sevens all over. There's, it's um, a lot of references to seven days. Uh, to there are seven items, there are seven. The lampstand in there as well as seven. Menorah has menorah. seven. Yeah. Oh, I should have written a note here where to read. Oh, I did read verse twenty-one, twenty-two. Twenty-one and twenty-two. Why? Oh, because this is the um, inside in the middle of the tabernacle is going to be placed the stone tablets with the. Uh, ten the, commandments. The Ten Commandments, the Ark, yep. Yeah, so they're going to, the, yes, and place inside the Ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give you. 
Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark and I will meet with you there to talk with you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. We're actually not really discussing here all the details, are we, in 25? That comes a bit... That comes probably in 26, a bit in it? Actually, in Mini Edens. Oh, Mini Edens. The next yep. one. Okay, we'll, so that's why we'll I'm, hold I'm, it to that thought. I'm skipping across here. Sure. So at this point, we're just talking about God so, making plans. So just think of, just at this point, you need to realise that the Ark of the Covenant and the, uh, the ark and the mercy seat, or what is it called, the atonement cover, are actually two different components. There's a lid that sits on top, and that has moulded angels, and that is the point at which the kavod, the glory of God, dwells somehow. Somehow, the cloud of glory that was on the mountain is in that point. That is the that is the touchdown point of heaven and earth. And that is within the holy of holies, in the, holy of holies. In the middle center. Yep. yep, the place that the high priest would go once per year. Yes, on the day of atonement. Yep. Yeah, and. What this whole idea of this tabernacle really is about um, having access to God, but through grace. Yep. Yep. And God desiring relationship with Him. Mm -hmm. And oh, see, I just want to talk about many Edens, but I won't get there. Don't do that until we get <laughs> Don't there. Don't do that until we get there. Otherwise, we'll have nothing to talk about next week. Yeah. No, it's there's there is a lot of symbolism here. Yes, heaps of and symbolism. We do just tend to just gloss over these things, yep. but if if anything, these verses show you that there, you really do need to pause and think about what each thing means because it's yep. much more profound than you could have imagined. Yeah, well, let, let's just give them a little taster for next week. Verse three, it's the the sacred items we've talked about the offerings. It lists a few things: gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat hair for cloth. So, gold is a symbol of majesty. Silver is a, a symbol of blood. Bronze is a symbol of judgment and you purification. Mean, oh, sorry, you did, yeah, There's silver. Three. Yep. Am I in the right spot? Yeah, yeah, you are. Yep. Yep. So gold is a symbol of majesty, God's glory. Silver, silver is a symbol of blood, sacrifice. Bronze is a symbol of judgment, purification, because um, bronze is the only metal that doesn't burn. Um, blue, purple, and scarlet yeah, threads. So once again, you've got blue, symbol of uh, the sky, heaven. Purple is a symbol of royalty. And scarlet, a symbol of blood and sacrifice again. Fine linen, goat hair for cloth. Um, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> Ramskins. <laughs> there's others there I'd have to think of in, in, in more depth. Olive oil for lamps. Oil is symbolic of the spirit and anointing. It's the God's presence, God's, God's presence on the earth. And then these rich stones and all that sort of stuff. So there's just a, a, a taste that there is symbolism in all of these items the materials that the temple is made out of. And then there's also the temple itself is the shape of it is also symbolic. I probably took you off on a tangent there, Gina. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I just, at this point, I do want to ask about cherubim. Mm -hmm. what, what's a cherubim? Uh, there's only a few references to cherubim in the Bible. Uh, there's, there's a cherubim uh, guarding the way to the tree of life in the book of Genesis after um, Adam and Eve sin. There's the cherubim in, in this sense, the, these angelic beings that uh, Ezekiel, Revelation, Daniel sees them. Sometimes they're called seraphim, Isaiah sees them. Seraphim, cherubim, scholars will argue if it's the same thing or different things. But uh, they are angelic beings that seem to be uh, almost like the bouncers, <laughs> God's bouncers. They're, they're, they're right at the foot guarding God's throne, the, the closest angels to, um, to the Lord. So... They make this ark that's made, human-made. Uh, it's overlaid with gold, mm -hmm. which is a precious, precious yep. metal. 
God made gold. Yep. We d- it's not being covered with iron, which yep. is something that we would make. And then that's an earthly component, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, we have these cherubim, mm-hmm. heavenly mix. Yep. <laughs> yep. I should add, the reason they didn't make them out of iron is because they hadn't, we, we're not we hadn't there yet. got there yet. We hadn't got yeah, there yeah, yet. Yeah. We're still 400 years from the Iron Age, but that's okay. But yes, bronze was, this was the Bronze Age. Yep. Thanks for that little bit of history. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of reality. Sometimes yeah. I get caught up in all the heavenly stuff. Because yeah. well, my thought was, wow, it's not iron because it's not, you know, no, humans they, have mixed they it. Weren't, it's like, they, you're they, right, weren't, you're they weren't making iron yet. Um, so, yeah, so you've got the cherubim covered in gold. So what specifically were you saying about? I cut you off there. Oh, I'm just weirded out by the cherubim. Okay. It's something that's heavenly. Now uh, we're seeing it because there are... Yeah. Ha- it's on the curtains as well, which yes, we will learn, yep. and then on the Ark of the Covenant. Yep. And does it appear a third time uh, at the at the uh, entrance to? Uh, I think even certainly the entrance to the holy place. Not, I don't know if it's the entrance to the outside of the tabernacle. I can't remember. You might you've read no, it more not recently. No, right? not on the courtyard, but then but the, the yes, tent. Yes, so the and tent the right behind the altar, the, the the sacrificial altar and the water, the sea where they would the, where they would wash their hands to go into do their priestly duty inside the holy place. Yes, there's cher- there's curtains on cher- with cherubim there. It's supposed to think Eden. You yes. know, straight away you're thinking, I'm walking back into Eden here. This is, this is God allowing humanity to come back into the very place where their sin caused them to be banished from. And, and there's a process that gets them there. Yes, and it's also God's house. Yes. God is going to dwell in this place yes. amongst them. Yep. And I'll state at this point that the tabernacle is going to be put in the middle of all the 12 tribes. Yep. They're going to be all around. So it's, it's the most important Yes, the center. The center. And I will add that it, it you said that all around, uh, wherever that is in the book of Numbers, it's worth doing some research into it. Because if you read it literally, they weren't all around. They were actually, there was some tribes to the north, some tribes to the south, some tribes to the east, and some tribes to the west. That's what I meant. North, well, south, east, west. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, And if you take that literally, then and you do the numbers, and you actually measure out the numbers, because it actually quotes how many numbers there are. So you actually have... Th- some tribes are bigger than other tribes. Some too. tribes are bigger than others. Yeah. And it actually, if you do the numbers and work it out roughly, what Moses would have seen from the top of the mountain, with the ark in the middle, with God's presence in the middle, the tabernacle in the middle, he would have seen, I'm going to try and do this for those on video, you'll be able to see this, but I'm going to try and do it a little bit and see if you can picture this, Jenny. If you actually measure up the numbers, there's the presence, there's the ark in the middle. Directly north of it is a group of tribes that's like that. Directly south of it is a group of tribes that's like that. Directly to the west of it is a group of tribes that like that. And directly to the east of it is a group of tribes that looks like that. Okay, we just made a cross. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're so smart. (laughs) So it's the cross in the desert. It's It's the cross in the desert. It's almost like a prophetic declaration that on the cross, Jesus is the true sacrifice. And as Christians, we read a lot of the tabernacle, a lot of the uh, pieces in the tabernacle as pointing towards Christ. Yes. But I don't think that the people of the Jewish faith would read it that way, no. nor would they have seen a cross. They no, would have they just didn't seen. Have seen a cross. And, and look, you have to take that to assume that that's directly saying north, south, and it wasn't just generally in the north vicinity. It could have been a great circle. I don't know. But that seems to the written text seems to be saying that. So they wouldn't have necessarily interpreted it that way. Um, but reflecting back, the New Testament scholars definitely did reflect back and see Jesus as the fulfillment of all. Jesus saw it himself, and he often referred to himself as the fulfillment of these things. 
Well, it's easy to go back and see Jesus there. Yes. It's, uh, it's harder to see forward. It's hard to see forward, yeah. yeah. yeah sure. And so in chapter 26, it keeps going on, uh, you know, make the tabernacle from curtains of finely woven I can't even talk. Finely woven linen, decorated with blues, purple, scarlets, and with skillfully embroidered, you know, the cherubim, as we mm -hmm. said. And so everything about this tabernacle was skillfully made, beautiful, perfect, as much as it could be perfect. Yep. And uh, everything in it points to that mix of earthly and heavenly yep. things. Yep. There's one entrance. We should say that there is one entrance into the meeting point, into the Holy of Holies. Yep. One way in. One way in. One way of one grace. Gate. So, and you enter in and then there's the, the sacrifice, the bronze altar. Mm -hmm. Then there's the sea, the little yep. wash, basin, wash basin. And then there's the curtain. Yep. Into the little tent. Yep, yep, keep going. Keep going. Oh my gosh, I think well. I'm passing. You're doing ah, well. Keep well. going. This is the best. And then I think on the left, yep. we have the uh, the menorah, menorah which is left. just a lampstand, which is meant to represent the tree of life. Yep. Then on the right, we have the table uh, oh, with showbread. the showbread. Mm -hmm. The showbread, there are 12 pieces of showbread, which are cooked freshly once a week, changed on the Sabbath. Done her they represent folks. each tribe. Yep. And here's the really interesting part. That then looks into the Holy of Holies with the curtains. That curtain is said to be blue. Yep. Blue is thought of as sky. Sky. Yep. Or water, as you pointed out. Yeah, or the water is water. The above. water, yep. yeah. And the lampstand is always lit. Yep. And it's always shining on the 12 tribes of bread. Yep, you got it. Okay. In fact, it even specifically says that the, the, the cups of the lampstands are supposed to be fashioned in such a way that it pushes the light, reflects all the light forward so it's not absorbed into the back of the tent they actually like had a curvature on them to reflect light forward so let there be light there is light god's light is always shining on his people god's people yep yep now you said there's a temp there's a curtain oh in there's front. a curtain but that's yeah the, to there's, go into the holy of yes, holies and then you missed in, something uh right before the curtain oh i don't know there's another altar the golden altar the golden altar yes oh yes, yes. Yep. got it Oh, yep. Yep. wow, that sits tick, right tick, before tick. the curtain. And folks, you, look, you can just YouTube this and you can get some great, um, some great uh, imagery. Like there used to be a program, which a uh, computer program, which was superb that had back in the early days of computer gaming and that where you could actually visually walk into the tabernacle and look around. Oh, man, that sounds so, so boring. Yeah. Oh, Sorry. no, it's really <laughs> fascinating. You can actually go in and visually put yourself in the middle of a tabernacle and look around and, and see everything they were seeing. It's really well done. Well, it is interesting for me now. Now it's interesting And maybe for it's you. Sunday school, but well, can it, you imagine saying, kids, come, yeah, hey, I invite you to church. We'll spend the day going through the, <laughs> the tabernacle. The, I'll the tell you what's good about it, though, is that when you do, if you've, once you've done it and visualized it, you can actually enjoy reading this a lot more because you can see it with your mind's eye. The All golden right. altar. The golden altar. Curtain. Curtain. Other side of the curtain. Holy of holies. Holy of holies. Ark of the covenant. Yep. Also called, oh, I can't remember that name. But the, no, it's the mercy, then the mercy seat. The mercy seat. seat sits on top of the Ark of the covenant the or mercy, the atonement seat. Yep. yep. And then God's presence is yep. there. That's it. You got it. That's the tabernacle. The as it stands as it is so remember yeah. that everybody as we're moving on in our next podcast um about we'll go into that in a little bit yep. more detail good but that's basically it for those two chapters Great. and uh, if you did read them well done well done if you didn't i totally <laughs> agree because it's, <laughs> it's come on i'm super, supposed to be encouraging people to read uh, the bible not yeah. discourage them Jeannie. Uh, 
No, do read it, but yeah. there's symbolism. Look for it. You, use use the use some um, imagery. Use some Google images. Use some YouTube videos. It'll help you read yeah. this. And also note that the Bible uses a lot of imagery. Mm-hmm. We don't use that so much in our Western literature, I suppose. No, but we as need they to be aware did they did a lot of imagery. Yeah. All right, I can't wait for the next one. So okay, I'm sign off here. We'll sign off for that one. We've got to do the New Testament now. Oh, no. There's so much to go. All right. Heading to the New Testament. Okay. Here we are in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, and we're going to just do Timothy 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Sure. Uh, But in a row, but I will sort of break them down. We're going to start off with First Timothy here, mm-hmm. uh, chapter 1. And this is, who's writing here, Pastor Rowan? Who is this? Well, this letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God our Saviour, and Christ Jesus who gives us hope. And I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and the Christ Jesus our Lord give you peace and mercy. There's your you, answer. You just totally cheated. You read <laughs> I that. Cheated. I just read one <laughs> and two. But Paul does that in a lot of his letters. He'll often give you an introduction. Yeah, he does. Yep. So I'll just read what my Bible says here. It's a little commentary beforehand, before this. Uh, the, he, Paul is writing this probably around AD 64, uh, just before his, uh, or in his, just prior to his final imprisonment in Rome. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this letter near the end of his life. He really did. And he addressed it to, as you said, Timothy, whom he had left in Ephesus to correct some problems in the church there. The Ephesian church struggled with doctrine, church practice, church government, and various aspects of Christian living. Paul gave Timothy instructions concerning these matters. He also wrote to encourage Timothy so that he would not become weary in his Christian life, but would live wholeheartedly for the glory of God. Paul also includes specific regulations for the ordination of church officers. And themes in this, uh, the importance of right belief and right behavior forms most of this book, the themes of this. Yes, great. And and Paul stresses that we must know the truth and defend it when false doctrines arrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, be careful to live live lives that are consistent with the doctrine so that Satan will not get an advantage over the people of God. So I would have chosen these books of First Timothy and Ephesians next week when we when we're doing a series on the church because these are these are these are books that are they're called the pastoral epistles. The epistles Paul's writing uh, to Timothy in this case, um, and he's writing about church life, how how to conduct yourself as a church, how to how leaders should train the church to live its life. So that's why it's in this context. Okay, because I actually thought you'd chosen this as part of God's house because it. It actually describes Christianity gone wrong. Yes, yeah, it, yeah, it does. I mean, <laughs> it, exactly that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a it's a pattern for how we should be living and conducting ourselves as Christians. But it's re- 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 um, reacting to what the church isn't doing that it should be doing. And it seems there's a lot of false teaching in this church. There is for so whatever reason. Paul has started this church. Yep. Right. And now things have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. They have wandered from his original teachings, Mm -hmm. creating their own ideas. They're arguing amongst each other. And the church is not looking at all like God's house should should look. That's correct. But he's writing it to Timothy to, is the word embolden? Timothy is yeah, that the word yeah, to embolden, yeah, embolden Timothy, Timothy in his faith and stay strong yep. to the truth, yep. uh, including the prophecies that that had been given, had to, given him. to him yep. that he's going to yeah. be a truth yep. 
talker. Yep. And here, and like in verse four, we sort of, I get the idea that, um, I'll just read it for you, talking about other people speaking, don't let them waste their time or in the church in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. So should we assume that, that there are a lot of people just making up stuff about the faith? Yes. And I think fables some, yeah, and I genealogies th- on Yeah, on I think some of it's made up. I, I would wonder if some of it is just people getting stuck in rabbit trails as well. So I think there's a sense in which I'm all for studying and, and mining in the riches of God's word, but there are some things that we need to keep with an open hand and go, you know, it could be this or it could be that. Um, and good godly people are going to have different perspectives about it and, and avoid that thing of, of just getting so stuck in an endless discussion about whether it's this or that and start taking sides and start polarizing your view against those people who disagree with me. I think that is probably just as much of a risk. In fact, I would say to many Christians today, that's more of a risk than somehow going off on a tangent and having weird beliefs about um, religion in general. I, d- I think that would be easy if we only thought it was that second thing, the, the first thing you said, which is like believing myths or crazy stuff. Um, I think it would be easy for those of us to think, well, we know the Bible, we're in church. It doesn't apply to us. It, that applies to all those weird people who are into the occult or into whatever. It probably does apply to them, but I don't think we should be so quick to dismiss ourselves and realise that we can also end up in endless discussions and spiritual pedigrees, oh, I'm better than you and all that kind of stuff. And Paul would say, don't go there. That's not Christian living. He actually says here, the purpose of, his, of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience and genuine faith. That's what I just said. I should have yes, let him say it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, but some people have missed the whole point. Yeah. They've turned these things into meaningless discussions. Wow. So can we in this, in our church environment, actually miss God when we're talking about these things we're missing the point i yes. kind of did really just say that didn't yeah you? yeah I, I think we can we've got to be careful yeah. we don't do we don't miss the point it doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss and we shouldn't mind the riches and and look at all these interesting things but let's just not get so dogmatic about that that we miss the love because we miss love and grace toward one another because we're becoming so self so prideful as that we we have all the answers because he goes and says they want to be known as teachers uh, but they really don't know what they're talking about so <laughs> let's not be those kind of people <laughs> I love his honesty. He's very upfront, isn't he? <laughs> it is. Yeah. Oh, and I love, uh, I've been, I looked at the Bible project on how to actually read these letters mm-hmm. uh, because they always start off with a poem, it seems. And yep. then in that poem or a little bit later on, they mention the point of the letter and then they go to flesh out the point mm-hmm. of that letter and the body of the letter. And then they end with a, a, a poet poem yep. at the Some end as well. Of, yep. So they're not written like the way we would write letters no. and they're written to be read out yes. loud. Yep. And also it would have taken a lot to write a letter. You're, tra- you're telling somebody to write it down. You're thinking about every word that you're writing. Yep. So right now we'll just pump out an yeah, email. Yeah, that's right. We don't like something. We just delete it and go again. Delete it. Yeah. Or we'll just quickly send an email with terrible grammar. Yeah. Not that I would ever do that, but... <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't cost us anything to write a letter yeah. but letters would be very costly and yep. expensive so we should assume that Paul has spent a lot of time thinking crafting about this, it crafting yes. this letter and 
It's a lot of time they would actually have a professional writer who would come, like if Paul was in prison writing the letter, someone would come probably with a, a clay tablet and he would jot down some ideas and give some basic thoughts. They'd go away and come back with a replaceable clay tablet where they could kind of like, like the old Etch-a-Sketch where you could wipe clean and start again. And then when they were ready, they would fine tune it and produce the final um, letter onto papyrus that would then be transferred oh, and sent. Thank goodness. I thought you were going to say they were <laughs> sending tones no 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 they, no, they would they, because papyrus was expensive it was often animal skin or whatever so they would yeah. write onto clay get it right and then transfer the final letter onto papyrus that's my understanding of how it works and then it would go it via worked. hand and horse and ship yep and everything it took a long time yep. to get there no instant emails no <laughs> which is kind of a good good thing <laughs> sometimes you was. can write the wrong thing yeah that's right <laughs> i would say never read an email never write an email or a text that you don't want your grandmother to read good theory yep yeah yep so <laughs> that should make sense people should get that yep and in the uh verse eight we sort of he talks about the law mm -hmm. we know that the law is good when used correctly so we should assume we can use the law incorrectly mm -hmm. for the law was not intended for people who do what is right it's for people who are lawless and rebellious who are ungodly and sinful so look is he saying here that the law is the law of the Leviticus, yes, or is, is he talking about the Ten Commandments, uh, or is he talking about what Jesus spoke? No, I think he's talking about the Mosaic Law, so which is the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the laws that Moses gave. I think that's what he's referring to, the Torah, the Torah, the instruction. That's what the word means, instructions. So, if he's still following the law, why aren't we? Um, Paul, Paul didn't follow the law actually. He, what? Yeah. Wait, so, what? Yeah, wait, what? He, he, he didn't follow it in the way that the, he had followed it up until becoming a Jesus follower. He had sought to, he says, I'm zealous for the law above many people my own age. He was incredibly zealous to abide by the law, but he realized all the Christian principles that he couldn't abide by the law. He needed saving. He needed someone to help empower him. And he gave that to Jesus. So it's, I would say Paul's view of the law is very much like what I shared before. And that's why I would shape my view of the law around of how I think Paul interpreted it. And that is that these are good principles by which we can we should aspire to live. These are God's ways, but we can only do it when empowered by God's spirit through grace after having um, allowed Jesus to defeat the power of sin in our life. That's interesting that you say all of that because in this book, you know that there are questions that a lot of people will have mm -hmm. based on the content, mm -hmm. uh, particularly around women that will come up. Mm -hmm. So what, should we read it then that what Paul is saying here is good to do, but we don't necessarily have to do it or we're, not, we're always going to fail at it? Oh, what am I trying to say? Let's just scratch that. Scratch that. We'll come. Are, you, are you talking about where Paul's practice around women in ministry and all that's going to come up is that what you're yes talking about? okay yeah, yeah we'll, we'll we'll deal with that um a little bit we we kind of didn't touch on it when i was in my conversation with jeff we sort of skipped <laughs> over it we, we'll come back to it at some point when one timothy two is where it's going to have to be there in the next chapter so is that where it is I, we're going to come up to it yeah we're going to get there pretty quickly okay but here he's he is really talking about the law and then he seems to introduce these new ideas mm -hmm. so we do when we read this book we have to look at first of all the mosaic law and then we're looking at 
Timothy in a, his cultural context. Mm -hmm. And then also we have to think, how do we apply what Paul is teaching us in our context, yep. in our culture, which is very different to this different one. Different culture, yep. So in saying all that, sometimes these letters are very, very hard to read. Right. Because we, we struggle with the cultural We do struggle um, with barrier, the culture. Yeah. Like. And yeah, sure. also the idea that we oh we can pick and choose one thing that Paul yeah, says without gotcha. choosing, you know, <laughs> without yeah. listening to the Which other one. We humans want to do all the time. Oh, I like the sound of that. I'll take that literally. Oh, that I don't like the sound of that. That must be metaphorical or I can ignore that. We rather than allowing it to be filtered through its lens of what the culture that it was speaking to. Yes, yeah. that's correct. So while there's some amazing things that he says in here, there's also moments that require a lot of questioning and thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing wrong with and questioning. And meditation. Yep. And when he d talking about the law, the law does reveal us to be lawbreakers. Mm -hmm. It reveals that we need somebody to fulfill the law, yep. which all points to Jesus. Yep. And his point, he moves on sort of almost quickly from that. Um, talking about <laughs> these these are so in-depth i don't know how we're going to get through these well things. pastor phil's written an entire book on one timothy so yes the, oh, okay. we are going to have to just kind of pluck out certain things because these are very rich with practical christian life yes and yeah. I, I look i'm actually way more excited about talking about the tabernacle than this okay yes because there's a lot of things you know when he says in verse 14 oh, how generous and gracious our lord was he filled me with the faith and love that ca that come from christ jesus it we need to just stop and think about that. Oh, how gr generous and gracious yes. our Lord was. All these statements we have to think about. It's not as easy as sort of a history lesson. No, no. Take your time with the, with the pastoral let letters, definitely. Timothy's and Titus, definitely, especially. And he, he's really pointing out the gospel here. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he says, I'm the worst of them in verse 15. And God, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience. Mm. God had mercy on him in the same way that he had mercy on Jacob, that we read about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Paul was deeply aware of his own sinfulness, his own self-righteousness, and he knew that he needed saving. He, he, he need, knew that he needed the mercy of God, the grace of God, and he was ever grateful for that. Jacob did not, though. What I... <laughs> Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, maybe in time say, Jacob came to yes, recognize it at least in that those yeah. that moment when God meets yeah. him but here what we, we what we may not realize is that there's probably 10 years from Paul's conversion Saul's conversion on Damascus before he starts to preach he, go, he preaches immediately in Damascus and then he gets out of Damascus and he goes back to Tarsus his hometown and he's there for about 10 years I thought it was 14 but well my math is bad as I said I think if I piece it all together, the 14 years is, is a different thing again. Okay. It's a different thing. But there's a period of unwritten period where we don't know anything about him except that he's in his hometown for 10 years until Barnabas goes and finds him. So in that 10 years, he's obviously having to work through a lot of his own, he's having his own journey of working out his relationship with Jesus and, and reconciling himself with his understanding of the Torah and how he misinterpreted it. So 10 years of intense time and preparation before he begins his ministry. Should we think that in those 10 years, he's going back through the scriptures? Exactly. And he's finding Christ that's in what those I'm doing. moments. I, I think that's what a lot of that was about. And is it at this time that God is, or Christ is revealing his mystery to him? Yes. Yep. Which he continues to do, I suppose. He goes through, but yes, ministry. there was a very much a preparatory time 
where I think he had to unlearn a lot that he'd learned and, and put Christ and see, see Christ as the fulfilment of everything that he thought was, uh, he, he didn't understand about the law. He knew the law inside out and back to front. He knew the, he knew the scriptures, but he missed the point of the scriptures, which was Jesus. And so he has, Paul has to go on this journey of, like you said, seeing Christ in all of that. And Paul also had one of those heavenly moments when Christ appeared to him yep. on the road to Damascus. Yep. Heaven come to earth. Yep. And he's greatly changed. But he doesn't necessarily become the person he needs to be. He has this ten yes, more period years, of time. Yep. Period of time of learning. And here he under and he a lot of that he speaks about is grace and mercy. And we have our understanding of grace and mercy really from what Paul writes. Yeah. Yep. He's a big part of our understanding of New Testament grace and mercy. Yep. And I love how he, he gives back all honour and glory to God forever and ever. In everything he says, he's always giving honour and glory to God. He's the eternal king, the unseen mm. one who never dies. Amen. He just <laughs> sees Jesus in everything. It's powerful. And then he moves on. Um, and this is when he says, Timothy, my son, here in verse 18, here are my instructions based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight you in the Lord's battles. So w- what Paul is talking about here is something that the Holy Spirit has done, right? He's revealed some prophecy. Yes, yeah. He's, he's through uh, a previous encounter at some point. He's, Timothy's had, his, had, had hands laid on him and prophetic words spoken over his life. And he's reminding him again, I want you to continue to, to use those, um, you know, c- continue to rely upon those prophetic words and those promises and live those out in your life. If Timothy received that personal prophecy, does this mean that people can receive personal prophecy today? Yeah, I believe so. We talked about that with Jeff. Oh, we did this first, we Jeff, did first Corinthians podcast ever. 12, 13 and 14, the spiritual gifts. So um, yes, we talked about I'm spiritual gifts. I'm definitely going to listen to that when it yep. drops. Yep. That's for sure. <laughs> yep, it does. We believe that, yeah, the gifts of the Spirit haven't died out and they are still available today. That's what, that's what Pentecostal theology, I won't go into it now, but that's what Pentecostal charismatic theology teaches. And he, he speaks about it so casually here. It's a normal part of his life. Uh, that's part of the problem is we, we weird it all out. It's not supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be supernaturally natural. It's supposed to be heaven meeting earth. It's not supposed to make people weird. It's supposed to be, we're so God-centered and heaven uh heaven infused that we become of practical use on the earth our life is and our interactions with other people we're living the ten commandments our interaction with god means that we live out our life in a way that adds value and brings god's kingdom to other people that doesn't have to be weird it can be supernaturally natural it's gonna be weird to a lot of people out there (laughs) (laughs) i just have a question around timothy here he's left to uh, teach this church. So what is his actual job? Is he the pastor here? Or I think that's the assumption is that he is in some kind of pastoral leadership in that church. Yeah, he's part of his role. If you take that, then his role is teaching and exhorting and and caring for and, and making sure that their doctrine is sound and um, helping them grow in their faith. Yeah, and helping them be a um, a people group who represent God on the earth. He also had to rebuke them, there's yeah. that word, to rebuke them and yep. silence those teachers who were speaking perverse things. Mm, mm. So this is the beginning of Christianity mm-hmm. and there's already, a, it's there's already rocky. Yep, there's already people who are preaching for their own gain, he says in Philippians or Ephesians, wherever it is. There are already people who are living for themselves, who are misinterpreting God's plan. 
um, yeah, so right from the earliest stages, the church um, is still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Have we figured it out? No, no. I think um, I did see a meeting the other day that said if Paul was still around um, to speak to the American church, we'd all be getting a letter yeah. to talk to the Americans. So, <laughs> and Paul would say uh, in one Americans, one, one, I don't even know where to begin. I don't. Or, or you say, don't <laughs> let me come back there or something like that. So, yeah, I think we haven't figured it out. I, I think we are figuring it out and we should continue to desire to be challenged and and wrestle wrestle keep your heart pure and wrestle and want to honor god with our lives and want to represent him well on the earth and i think if we do that god will make up for those messes that we make along the way we won't continue to make them but let's continue to be gracious and seek god's truth and try to live out that on the earth chapter 2 it starts off I urge you first of all to pray for all people ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth when he says everyone does he mean literally everyone uh, I think that's what it means. I think God's so. Everyone just means everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone means everyone. I don't think. I think that, that fits with God's plan. You talked about this earlier in this episode that God's, you know, the Ten Commandments was for everyone. Well, no, I'd argue the Ten Commandments was for Israel so that they could represent God to everyone. And I think that's God's plan is that all people would come to the truth and come to understand the truth and be saved. It's always been God's intention from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. So all people doesn't exclude. Drunkards, yeah. idolaters, all the things that he's just mentioned before. Yep. It actually means... It means all people. All it's people. not all people, but you people. Um, sadly, too many Christians have an us and them mentality rather than, hey, we're all in this boat together. We all need a saviour. And yeah, God's plan is for all people. And that we should pray for all people. Yep. And in this context, he's often talking about those in authority as well. So it's that sense of pray that, that the world will operate pray for the kings and those in authority so that we can live peaceful lives and how are we going to live peaceful lives well hopefully the people in authority would it um, would govern in such a way that would be almost kingdom like kingdom of god like rather than kingdom of humans <laughs> selfishness and yeah. we should give thanks for all people Ooh, leaders yeah everyone thanks mm. for all our enemies mm. what he's setting up here in this two or three sentences or actually I don't know how many sentences it is, but it's verses. Three verses. Verses. Yep. verses. He's, he's strongly suggesting that Christianity should be a place of love and thanksgiving and tolerance. Yes. I believe so. You believe so? I do. I, I think you'll get pushback from some people who go that the word tolerance creates. Um, well, we have a modern day. We have a modern day understanding thought of, of tolerance. what tolerance is. But Not the best word. but Yeah. But yes, I think uh, with that, that caveat aside, the Christian church, if we look at Jesus, we should be like Jesus. Well, Jesus was uh, gracious and kind towards those that were on the outside and the underdog and those that the world had rejected. That's who we should be. Yeah. I have a, uh, it says in my notes here, in, in my other translation, 
we should make supplication prayers intercessions. Uh, I think that's a good way to talk about it because what is a supplication? Which it, when we're praying for people, we're supplic- making supplications, we're appealing to God's mercy, and in prayers, claiming the promises of God, and in intercession, submission to the purposes of God, and thanksgiving for the goodness of God. So he isn't just talking about, dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for all these people. Um, bless them. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Make them Christians. Amen. Yeah. He's actually, in his prayer, he's talking about prayer as being a more meaningful thing. These are very active verbs. Active verbs, yes. Yeah, Yeah. supplication indicates this whole thing of standing in the gap, not standing out, that's intercession. But making supplication is to really, um, to apply on behalf of someone else, to to really, um, really pray for that person earnestly, I suppose. Yeah. Um, So I think these are all, uh, you know, they're all very active terms that, they're all slightly different. There might be some overlap. I don't think you could separate out supplication from intercession 100%, but there may be, may be variables of the same kind of thing. But I, I, I read it as definitely urging that prayer should be something that is very active and very earnest. And it's an act of worship, I suppose, too. Mm, mm, very much so. Because when we do that, we are fulfilling one of our priestly duties. Jesus, it says always makes intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. So if we are going to be representatives of Jesus on earth, then prayer on behalf of others is is a deeply priestly duty. And um, to not take that seriously is to miss out on one of our primary roles. In the ch- and this isn't just the pastors or the prayer team or the intercessors. This is all of us. We should be praying. Because he's speaking to the entire church here in this letter. Well, he's letter. speaking He's speaking to the entire church through Timothy. Through so he's, Timothy. T- he's telling Timothy, these are the things I want you to teach the church. Yes. But yeah, his plan is that this is what the church should look like. He's not saying, Timothy, I want you to just be this way. This is I want you to teach the people this is how they should live their lives as Christians. Yeah. So we're giving to each other in that sense of we're praying for you. And yeah. We're thinking about your life and the problems you have and i'm spending my time praying for praying you. for you and that's an in- incredibly intimate uh, rich thing and that that marks us apart from it should mark the church apart from other people that level of investment and desire to genuinely pray for the good of others that's that should be a beautiful thing it's not easy i'm not a naturally prayer intercessory person but i'm well aware as a pastor that and I spend, I spend time deliberately praying for the people I care for, that I'm called to care for because um, if I don't, I'll become selfish. But I recognize there's a responsibility. If I'm going to represent God to the people and the people to God, I need to pray for them. And doesn't this also mark your maturity in your faith that when you become, you're an early Christian or a, a newborn Christian, yep. <laughs> you pray for yourself? Yep. Uh, you know, dear God, help me with this and that, Yeah. <laughs> whatever. But the more you read the Bible, you more you learn and the Ten Commandments. It's about loving others. And then and you start yeah, to call. focus less, less on, on yourselves ourselves and, and more, more on, on it. Yep. And also more on the church. Yeah. The peop- not just the people in our personal community, but the church worldwide. Yep. Yep. All of those things. All of the above. Our local church, our, our global church, praying for those in persecuted around the world, all of it, all of those things. Yeah. I don't have enough time for that. So I'll just trust you to do that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that, that's a good point though. Just while we're on it, yeah, finding time to pray um, is, is, a, is a challenge. You, you need to carve out some time. It doesn't have to be long. I can have an earnest prayer. I can be praying for someone earnestly in a short period of time. Yeah. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. It can be just 
uh, really praying God would touch that person's life and bring healing into that life or help them with their mental well-being or provide for their needs. And, and I'll sense an earnestness come upon me. It might only last 30 seconds, but that's, that's enough to feel like, okay, I, I've done my part now. And it should just be easy, like a conversation with, yeah. with God. Yeah. Know, not Walking something where we have to get down on our knees or yeah. wash our hands and feet. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Th I don't think it has to be. I think it, it there has to be a, a. The closer we are to Jesus, the more natural that relationship is. Yeah. Is it good and acceptable to God, who desires everyone to come to God, and is? I had a question, which is look. This is I see. If I had emailed this to you, it wouldn't have made any sense. This is why I take time to write. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just something in this that my question here is: Will everyone come to God then, based on what He's saying? If you're praying for everybody. Will everyone come to God? I would say no. no. I would say no. <laughs> I would say no because God doesn't violate free will. So there is a school of Christian, pseudo-Christian thought that says that um, everyone ultimately gets saved. Um, that in the end, uh, everyone is saved. I think there's too many scriptures in my opinion. As much as I'd like that to be the case, there's too many scriptures in my opinion that's, that that prevent that from happening. I, I think that the whole concept of free will is too strong for it to be the case. I think we pray that God would draw in people's lives and we pray that people's lives would be open to God, but God will not, there's a tension there between that and God violating the free will of a person. And I don't think he'll do that. C.S. Lewis famously said, either we'll say, God, thy will be done, or God will say, your will be done. And I think there is a sense in which some people will just refuse. But my hope is that we can pray and see the Lord work and send his angels and minister to people and the, that many will come to Christ in some, in some mystical way that I may never know. Our prayers will have an impact. I just want to read verse 5 to you here. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Here I am reminded of the separation between heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also reminded of Jacob's ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, the per, um, people going up and down. Yep, angels or, going or up angels and down. Angels going yep. up and down. And I'm also reminded um, of the, the priest... Uh, who in the tabernacle, there's one priest who goes in for the day of yep. atonement. And also how uh, on the mountain, the, the people wanted Moses to be the mediator. Yep. And so as I read this Bible, I see that there is this need for a connection between heaven and earth. And here, Paul points to it so easily and says, hey, the actual real yep. mediator is Jesus, is Jesus Christ. Yep. He is the one that breaks or that bonds that separation between heaven and earth yep yep he is the touchdown point of heaven and the earth. touchdown point oh, so yeah. heaven comes to earth with jesus yes oh dear this plot thickens the plot thickens heaven comes to earth with jesus with jesus i just wanted to point that out because yeah. in verse five you can just read it so simply mm. yet there is history behind this there is history there is scripture yep. behind all of this this is probably something that paul was figuring out in that 10 years is that oh oh okay that jacob ladder thing that 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 god at the top of the throne that's jesus he's the one who's up there he's the touchdown point because he 
I, and I asked you before, did he appear in human form um, in that dream? And yep. I would say he is seeing a I human. I would say he's seeing a human being, yeah. Up there. Yeah. And in another strange sense, Jesus is the latter. If you look, he says to, in John's gospel, when he says to Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's, he's, in one sense, he's the God at the top of the ladder. And in another sense, he is the ladder. He is the, he is the joining point. So we're mixing metaphors, but the picture is very real that Jesus is the touchdown of heaven and earth. Which is why the Holy of Holies is gone, by the way. But anyway. Yes, that's exactly why. Segway. It's Jesus' death that separated the Holy of Holies, ripped the curtain. Ripped because the curtain. Jesus yes. was opening the way. Hebrews tells us that the, the, the curtain was torn to show us that the way of the Father had now been made complete through Jesus. I'm going to jump to verse 9. Verse 9. Uh, this is where it gets tricky. This is tricky. where we start talking about women. Yeah. Okay. And it says, and I, I should want have done my preparation <laughs> beforehand a bit better, shouldn't I? Yeah. First of all, it talks about, um, I want men to pray with holy hands. And then he says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair, blah, 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 blah. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. They should learn quietly and submissively. And I do not let women teach men and everything. So these are controversial verses yep. in our day and time because we have we live in a very different culture. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we actually live in a more Eden-like culture in that sense that when God created us to be equal, we can actually see that playing out now. Yes. Yeah, much more than, yeah, there's obviously still a lot of problems. But, yeah, in a much oh, more. Just a few. Just a few. But, yes, we, in many ways, our society is more Eden-like than it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so how, why do, how do. Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> okay. So if I'm reading this for the first time, yeah. I just would put this book down and I would say, that's it, Bible. I'm done with yeah. you. Go back and gather dust on the bookshelf yeah. where you came from. Yes. Because when you read that at face value, it seems like Paul's saying, I don't let women teach in church. And so you'd go uh, and, and rightly so women would go, well, that's crazy. That's, that's how sexist and, and you know, misogynistic is that? We won't have anything to do with it park it okay so when we get this question which is what this podcast is about when we get a wait what moment that's an invitation into deeper study now i'll, I'll preempt everything i'm about to say by saying that there are there are good godly seeking men and women on all sides of this debate on all sides of this conversation around the concept of can women speak in church and the equality issue um and it's not all there. The two main schools of thought are what we call egalitarian and complementarian. If you uh, and essentially, it's should women be allowed to teach men? Just keep it simple. Which is, seems, if you read this at face value, what, what does this seem to say? No. No. It seems to say no, right? So, at face value, this seems to be a saying: don't let women teach. So we need to now dig into it a little bit. And as I say, there are men and women on both sides. We fall. I fall very strictly on the egalitarian side, which is that, that um, that's not what this is saying, that, that women can teach in scripture and that God makes no separation between men and women. So if that's the case, and there are plenty of other scriptures that would indicate that um, throughout the New Testament uh, that, would, that would seem to talk to this um, common point. So for instance, Romans 16 is a great place to go where it lists lots of women. And in fact, Phoebe is the woman who was in, you said, the letters were entrusted someone to go and deliver them. Phoebe was given the job of, of uh, delivering the letter. Part of that delivering of the letter would have been reading it and answering questions about it. So she's teaching the hearers. So there are plenty of so other. Wait, what? 
because we know letters are meant to be read out. Yes, Phoebe's letters were read standing out. Standing up, reading these letters yep. in front of and, the men. And yeah, men and women. And more so than that, there would have been an implication of Paul would have, if you, if you just just common sense, if you you know that they're going to have questions about the letter, you're not just going to say, "Hey, Phoebe, just go and read this out and then leave it." Paul's going to make sure that Phoebe's well equipped to be able to answer questions because they're going to have questions. Oh, if they ask you such and such, this is what I want you to say about it. You know, I want you to elaborate more. So he spent some time with Phoebe. Now, I can't prove that. Um, there's not some huge amount of historical evidence that proves that, but just common sense seems to indicate that's what would be going on. And there probably is some evidence to say that's how letters were written and if uh, read. So if that's the case, Phoebe is delivering and teaching on this letter. That's just one example of that. Um, there is a, in Romans 16 a numbers of women who are listed as apostles. So um, there tells me once again there are women in leadership. Um, I'm trying to think what scripture we skipped over this with with Jeff, but we we talked about it. And I said, oh, let's park the the women in ministry issue. I knew this was coming up, and it was we were getting on. You a bit. must get this a lot. Yeah, <laughs> we, we do. Um, but as well as that, in this in this context here, I think. There's a few other things we can learn. It sounds almost derogatory when Paul's saying, "Hey, I want women to have this inner beauty and not, and not, um, you know, dress outwardly for beauty and all that kind of stuff." And that could sound like it's almost derogatory too. However, there's another way to interpret that, and that is that he's actually empowering women here, because in a culture where women were like arm candy, where women were show to, were supposed to be beautiful so that their husbands could show them off, Paul's actually he's elevating women and saying, "You're more than that." You're more than just arm candy. You're more than just trying to look look special so you can your husband people can praise your husband. I want you to recognise you have more potential in you than that. You you have an inner inner attractive beauty. You have value in and of yourself, not just uh, for what you look like to somehow bring glory to your husband. That's not the purpose. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And I also wonder: is he saying this because? He knows this is a mix of people and you have rich women and poor women. Yep. And he's, he's, is he specifically speaking to the that rich too. women here saying, hey, we want to be equal yep. and you that are too. so much far richer yep. than these slave girls yep. that are coming along. Can't we just all look similar? Therefore, there's no difference in yep. equality. Yep. We're all equal. We're all, We're all we, so believers. he's definitely talking about equality here. Equal, rich, poor, male, female, all of that stuff he says in Galatians. As well as that, this is the temple. This is Ephesus. This is the this is the city of the temple of the great goddess Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There's nothing left of it, but a few stones now. But in its time, it was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was a female-driven cult. So the women were um, were actually overly preachy in that they were they were elevated to the point where in that. It, it would have been actually quite common for the Ephesians to actually see women as higher than men. And so it could be that in this context, Paul's actually speaking to, there might have been some women that had come in from the church who'd been Artemis worshippers and they'd come in and they were trying to impose themselves upon the church. And from the opposite perspective, and Paul's actually saying, no, 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 we're equal here. I'm not saying, I don't want you coming in and taking over because that's what they would have been used to as a female driven worship cult. So these are all speculations, but they all give appropriate answers as to what Paul could be referring to. We just, it's like N.T. Wright says, the problem is we have one side of a phone conversation here. We don't have what's going on on the other end of the line. You know how when you're listening to a phone and you're only here right, yeah. trying to guess what's going on the other side? I think this is one of those times. We can make some assumptions, 
but it's, there's too much other evidence. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about, um, you know, may, women prophesying. Well, how can you say women are prophesying if you're not allowing them to speak in the church here? So it's not saying what we think it's saying is my argument here. And it does uh, mention his, his reasoning. It says, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. That's challenging, isn't it? It's very challenging. Yeah. Uh, the, I was trying to understand this. The woman was deceived by Satan. Yep. And that's a sin. But the man wasn't deceived because he was acting in love almost. He was in love with her and he just followed her along. That's a strange way to think of it. Yeah, I'm not sure that's what it's saying. I, I, it's a long time since I've done my re reading on this, um, so I'm not going to presume to be speaking with any great authority. I think Paul could be saying that it seems like he's get letting Adam off the hook and he's blaming Eve. I would say, though, there's another way to view this, and that is that Adam knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived, but God was the one who'd, received, who'd given Adam the command. Adam knew, and he went along with it will willingly, defying he wasn't deceived he knew that he shouldn't do it and he did it so that actually loads up adam's responsibility more not not less lets him off the hook more yet everyone always sort of says it's eve's fault are you saying adam went willingly so it should be less of a sin but she's deceived so it's more of a sin um the, it's the way i the way the, i interpret this in here is that Eve did the worst thing. And yeah, I, I don't. Th I, I want to do my research on it again and do some do some studies and look at some commentaries. But I don't think that's what Paul might be saying here. I think Paul might be actually being easier on Eve than he is on Adam, because Adam Adam knew that he shouldn't do it and he willfully disobeyed. To me, willful disobedience, knowing what you should do and not doing it, is worse than being deceived into doing the wrong thing. Well, I would agree with you. But I do have to read about read this more and give more yeah, thought yeah, to it. Give some more thought yeah. to it. Um, and number and verse fifteen. Verse 15 but women yeah. will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Yeah. There are it, some good resources. N.T. Wright has some good resources on this. He's staunchly egalitarian. He has some good resources. If you just Google N.T. Wright, First Corinthians, First Timothy two, I'm sure you'll find some him talking about it. Um, Marga Moscow, um, who is is a great resource on this stuff. Moscow, M-O-S-C-Z-K-O, -O, I think it is. Um, if you type that, you're close enough. She, um, she has some, she's an Australian author, has some great stuff on this, and she'll dig into all these scriptures a lot more than I'm doing here. Okay. But um, Just one question. Yep. Uh, what do you think about when in Eden the, the woman was cursed by having painful childbirth, mm -hmm. but here it's saying the woman, woman will be saved through childbearing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I have yes. looked at it in the past, but I don't retain that level of information. And it look, what I would be doing is I'd, I'd ask GPT, give me some scriptures, give me some, give me some perspectives on it and start to research again. And this is it. I, I've studied all this in the past, but I don't, I don't re people say, oh, you retain a lot. I don't retain everything. So don't feel bad if you don't know. I, I don't know. There's I'd, a lot I don't know. Yeah, and I don't feel bad about it. No, you shouldn't feel bad. I, I'd say that to the hearers as well. Don't feel bad if you don't know. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Sometimes too. In this case though, no, this, this warrants further study. And so, yeah, dig into it. We won't do it now for the sake of time. But no, we I won't. would dig into that and do some more research. And, and I will probably have to, I probably should have done that ahead of this time. But 
can't preempt every question. But here it is, and this is what's so great about the Bible. There's this, what, four verses, four or three, I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's only a few verses. That warrant such study and yeah. conversation. Yes. And that's what the Bible is meant to do. And it, deeply We're frustrates meant to discuss me, it. We should. And what frustrates me here is that, personally, just for me, is that I see a lot of um, complementarian theologians, they pick these verses and they give these what I would regard as a higher priority and miss a lot of the other stuff. So for some reason, because it seems so black and white, they take these and go, well, God said it. I believe it. That must be the way it is. And in doing so, they're, they're counteracting so much other weight that seems to advocate for the equality of women. I have to yes. be asking, there's something more going on here. But then it also, if they do take it like that, then it actually makes Paul's letters somewhat contradict each other. Yes, that's the point. They're, they're, they're dismissing something at the weight of something else, whereas we've got to look at Scripture as a totality and even Paul's theology as a totality, understanding that just like what you and me, Paul's theology developed over the time. So some of what he writes in Galatians early on might be enriched in some of his later writings because we're all on a journey of growth. But we shouldn't just take three verses, four verses, and think that's the sum total of what Paul thought about women in ministry because there's so much more that he does imply and say elsewhere. And we also need to think as well, this is the letter he wrote to Ephesians, yes. of Ephesus. But would he write the same letter to... Well, no. that's my point around yeah. the whole Artemis worship in the temple. I, I think that's partly why a lot of scholars think this could be why he's saying this stuff is because we're dealing with a, a city that was deeply entrenched in, in a female, uh, female virgin cult, basically. And so he's trying to... In one sense, these women have authority. In another sense, they're, they're victims. And so Paul's trying to bring some balance and some equality back into the church. And so you shouldn't be like that. You should be different. One good thing about it is, though, it does bring women into the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And because they often aren't in the conversation. Yeah. Paul's a master at bringing women into the conversation. Yes, it's but an, other cultures didn't, no, did they? no. No, no, so that there, there are people sitting around talking about women, uh, whereas we know in the Roman culture, women were disposable. Yeah. And here yeah. you are trying to figure out their value, um, yep. which is, they're very valued. Yep. Um, so that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, He's great. bringing women into the conversation. He is. I'm pretty much done with number, with episode, okay. uh, chapter two. Chapter two. Now we're on to chapter three. Chapter three. Okay. Chapter three, this is about leadership in the church, right? Yes. And it looks mas masculine as well, doesn't it? It sure does. Uh, if someone aspires to be an elder, he desires... Oh, this is the elders. Yep. Okay. What's an elder? I think at this point, they're still figuring it out. Um, the word pastor, elder, bishop are all kind of interchangeable. Uh, so I don't think we should get too hung up on it. Over time, it, it developed more structure around what an elder was. But even then, different churches will have different aspects of what that means. But it's someone who I would rather say, well, let's look at the job description and then determine what we want to call that person, whether we call them an elder or a pastor or a bishop or a mixture. Church governance is still very in its early stages. There isn't a formed up church doctrine around what governance looks like anywhere in the New Testament. And I always say when you're being martyred and burned at the stake, you haven't got time to sit down and figure out governance. That comes much later. 
but Paul has some patterns in mind and an elder is someone who has church leadership in some role, some kind of influence within the church. And churches would have been small. Yeah. A small lot of them are house churches. House churches. Um, or small groups of people that are affiliated together. Some of them, at the biggest might have been 100 people, but that would have been some of the bigger ones. Yep. So when he talks here that an elder must be a, a man whose life is above reproach, he must be faithful to his wife, he must exercise self-control, etc., etc., you can go and read that. But he's basically saying that this person must be sort of set apart. They should be a... Yeah, we say they, they should be Ten Commandment people. Ten Commandment people. They should be living a life that exemplifies God's values. Mm. And gentle and not quarrelsome, not love money, must manage his own money. This, uh, this is talking about a, a person that you would want to be your leader. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and that's not to say that, you know, it says hey, your children respect and obey. Well, you know, not every person, that doesn't disqualify every person because there's still room for free will. Some kids will, won't be obedient or whatever. But honour your father and mother. Yeah, that's right. So they, that's <laughs> right. It's, it should be there. But what I'm saying is if a child's rebellious or is not following the ways of the Lord, that's not always 100% on the parent. Um, because, you know, I find that incredibly, as a pastor, I find that in incredibly difficult for people to hear when they, they hear that, oh, you know, if you're, you can't be in church leadership or you can't have an influence because you've got a wayward child. That just adds to the pain of that parent. Um, I'd much rather show grace and compassion and realise that, hey, even with your best efforts, there's still free will. <laughs> well, yes, and if you judge me by my children, you might wrongly think I'm a saint. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wrongly think I'm a saint. <laughs> that's the opposite of... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes, oh dear. But if you're an elder in a church, does it make you more accountable by God? Um, well, Paul, or a leader even, more than the church members? Yes and no. Yes, in terms of accountability and responsibility. And even, I think it's Peter, I don't think it's Paul, I think it's Peter that actually says an elder is worthy of double wages, is actually what it says, like double honour but not so that they can get paid twice as much. Heck, I, I don't know if you want to pay me but twice as much you can, but that's not what it's about. But that sense of there's a responsibility that deserves a rec serves some recognition. Um, so yes, there is a, a heavier responsibility, but I think that can be very quickly flipped over to make it sound like somehow it's demanded of others. That I, as a leader, I demand special respect from people. That's the opposite of gospel. That's back to King image bearing where I'm the most important person in the room because I'm the leader. Paul would say it's not that way. Jesus would say it's not that way. So yes, there is extra responsibility, um, but it's coupled out through servanthood, through giving up your life for other people. So does that make sense? This yeah, it does make yeah. sense. To my mind, it may not to anybody listening, but... <laughs> Sorry if it doesn't, but yeah, I think it, we need to, as a leader, I take my responsibility seriously. Um, that I, you know, I have a responsibility before God to give account for people. I want to do my best to support them and help them, but um, but I'm not demanding some kind of recognition for that because that would be selfish on my part. Well, being a member of a church, I and reading these verses here, I am able to see how important it is that our leaders are honourable, mm. uh, particularly in this day and age where the media is yep. all over any leader that yep what what do you call, i've heard you say it, it's a 
conch of a a moral problem, a moral failure. Moral failure. A moral failure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you've heard, uh, you've discussed not that you've discussed people, but you've discussed moral failures of leadership, of leadership yeah. and how that can destroy a church. Yeah, because of that responsibility. So with great responsibility comes. Um, with, well, with great influence comes great responsibility because the fallout of a person of influence, a person that people look look to and respect, means that there's a greater risk of damage. The fallout can be greater. So yes, when a when a moral failure happens for someone in, in influence, and this isn't just in church life, it is, but it's whether it's a politician or or, or anyone who has or a sports person, anyone that has any kind of influence, with that carries a responsibility to conduct your life well because people look up to you. People look to you for advice. They look to you for respect. They look to you for influence. They, um, and therefore, I carry that weight very seriously. It's not just, if, if I have a moral failure, it's not just about me. It's my family and it's beyond that. It's the people that I'm called to care for. That That's sobering to me. Yes, and the more... Reading this letter now, I'm able to see how so much of it is about church life and mm. and, and leadership. And I've been thinking about this for certain uh, about. Let me start again. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that this gives good example of leadership, but also how I'm able to read how weighted and how hard it must be for people in leadership to maintain this integrity and these standards. And particularly when if you fall, I fall. Yep. And not only that, if people outside looking in, they say, oh, that pastor can't even live this, yeah. this life. Why should I become a Christian? Yep. And we've seen multiple, many leaders around the world fall mm, mm. and the faith has struggled. Yeah because of that and it's hard to tell people to explain our faith say oh um you should become a, become a christian because you have all these great benefits a relationship with god yep. and you know yada 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 when our people in leadership are dreadful yeah did that make any it sense did. oh it did. gosh and i would say, say not in any way to excuse it i think the fact that god continues to work with his church it's back to how he worked with jacob so people in leadership's leadership roles are in as much a work of progress yeah. as I am. Yeah. And we, we should be. We all are. That's not an excuse. Should never be. I should never see that as an excuse. But also I shouldn't presume to be perfect either because otherwise pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. So I, I need to realize that I'm just a work in progress and God has been gracious with me. Just because I have influence or I'm a pastor or whether a person is wealthy or any other form of influence doesn't make it better. You're still a work in progress. Stay humble. And that's a problem when we see famous pastors. We think they've got it all. Mm. They know everything, uh, that they lead these holy lives. But they don't. No. They don't. They are just as human as you and yep. me. And they don't know all the answers. Like you just said, you don't know in relation to that verse. No. The, no. On women. You no. don't know the answers. No. And it is a journey. Going back to Jacob, uh, he, his journey of faith. We learn more as we go. Our faith matures. And the mistakes that we make today won't be the mistakes we make in no. 10 years because we've learned a new lesson. And I would say to those that have, you know, been the recipient of someone who has been in leadership or influence over you that has had a moral failure or who, who has let you down, they represent Jesus, but they're not Jesus. 
and I'm sorry that they've let you down. I'm sorry that that has happened. And I often find myself apologising. Jill and I often joke about how we feel like we have to apologise for Christians when we're talking <laughs> to non-Christians all the time. And because <laughs> Christians are frail and we, leaders let you down, but Jesus won't let you down. He, just because we don't represent him well, and I say to people in our church, I say, if I haven't offended you yet, hang around, sooner or later I'll say something or do something that will. And it won't even be intentional, but it'll just be because of my own failings, because I'm not perfect and I will operate from the flesh or I will be upset or misunderstand something and I'll, I'll hurt you and I'll let you down. Not, not intentionally, but I'd say that will happen, but Jesus won't. And, um, you know, if you stick with Jesus and, and find grace in him to help forgive and overlook and he will heal you from the pain. Some of it's deep. Some of the spiritual abuse people suffer at the hands of leaders is deep, but stay stay close to Jesus and let him heal you and bring you through that. Don't don't throw everything out just because someone has let you down. Jesus will never let you down. So it's less about the leaders and more about Jesus. Yeah. Less about what the leader says and does, more about God's word that doesn't change. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. If only we could realize that. Remember yeah. that. Yeah, and that's not to say it isn't about I, that's went back to I carry the weight of it, the responsibility that I do represent Jesus. But I would say to my hearers, but I'm not Jesus. I represent him and I will. Sometimes I'll do it well and sometimes I'll do it poorly. But I'm not Jesus. And I'm, on a, I'm a work in progress. If you can look through me and see the Christ in me and, and then overlook the things that aren't Christ in me, then you're doing well. So this is how you conduct yourself in the house of God. You have to be uh, able to forgive each other, to love each other and to understand that we're all works in progress. Yeah, come on. That's From it, the leadership down to the, yep. I don't know. There's no levels. There shouldn't be there levels should, I didn't even like in the this down church. To yeah, I know. No, yeah. that was incorrect of yeah. me. I was actually yeah. going to say down to me, but anyway, I thought, no, no, don't speak it's, that poorly no, of yeah. yourself. We've, we've got to remove. <laughs> yes, there's there's structures and authorities within a church, but we, and, but when we say down to, it can very easily carry with it the the feeling of one person being more important than another or better than another. So no, there are structures and authority structures in church. The Bible's very clear on that, but they operate for the good of the body. That doesn't mean that when I, the moment I take my pastor hat, I might have a structural authority that is for the benefit of others in the church, which does give me a, a level of authority over a person's life. That doesn't mean the moment I take the hat off, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just rowing and I'm just a friend. So part of that's learning to recognize that the, the structure is not the person. We operate within a structure for the benefit of a body of believers functioning together, but that doesn't make me better than anybody else. I could say a few jokes, but I won't. <laughs> but I, I will say that uh, I guess when I said down to, and I was going to say me, it's it just shows you what I've kind of grown up with in the church. Right. That y there are these people that are uh, held above, yeah. you know, these great celebrity pastors and yeah. stuff. But when I read... Timothy and Ephesians, there's so much equality in yes. it all and you can miss it because even the fact we're talking about deacons and elders here, you can miss that we're all important. We all have roles to play yep. in the church and we yep. all serve each other. Yes, amen. Amen. So let's go on to the last chapter of the book. Warning is about, warnings about false teachers. So chapter f uh, four, 
warnings against false teachers. So mm-hmm. as much as there were false teachers, then there are yep. now. Yep. Correct? Yep. And in 1 to 5, the Holy Spirit teaches us that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. But they were already experiencing that. Yes, they were. And they're experiencing this now. What were they experiencing? They were experiencing people who would uh, follow deceptive spirits and teachings. So there was a spiritual warfare going on here. There was false teaching that was being inspired by the enemy. And is that happening now? Yeah, I think that's we're still in the last days. So yes, that's definitely truth. The last days, by the way, every culture says they're in the last days. Well, the last days began. We talked about this with Jeff. Oh, the last Jeff. days began on the day of Pentecost. Yes, and they we're still did. in them. Yes, because yes. they're expecting Christ to come any day. Yes, it, they Timothy are. is yep. okay. And then it goes on here to talk about um, it's wrong to be married, and certain foods are wrong, and, and it's sort of creating a lot of. He's mentioning that as people are creating a lot of laws that yes, were not it's true. Legalism laws. Legalism that's, laws. That's what the that's what the deceptive teaching is. There's something there's something seemingly attractive about rules and regulations and do's and don'ts because it, what, it makes us feel better than everybody else. It makes us feel righteous. And Paul's saying it's not doing that. Colossians tells us that. Uh, you know, these things actually lack power. That's what Paul's saying. Is this deceptive teaching is actually destructive teaching. And if we're not listening to deceptive teaching, what are we doing? What are we meant to be doing if we're not listening to teaching? <laughs> like, um, I think what we should be doing is Acts 17 verse 11 talks about uh, people in a place called Berea that Paul went and visited and said, the Bereans had more noble character than those in Thessalonica where he'd just been because they listened to what Paul said and they eagerly studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. So what should we be doing? We shouldn't be critical and cynical of teachers. That's dangerous. If we just dismiss everything or we have an attitude of, oh, Oh, you preach to me, Pastor, and if I like what you say, I'll listen. And if I don't like what you say, I'll ignore it. Or unless I believe 100% what you say, I'll ignore it. I think that's cynical and you won't learn anything. The opposite end of the spectrum is that you just accept everything they say and you don't listen and you don't use your own brain and you don't do your own research and you don't have conversations and you don't listen to podcasts like this and you just accept everything your leader says. You can be carried off in a deception. I think there is a different attitude. The attitude the Bereans had was they studied the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. I've met people who study the scriptures daily to see if what the preacher says is false. (laughs) And that's, it almost looks the same, but it's wrong. Because one is trying to prove it wrong. One is trying to prove it right. Well, it's an attitude of heart. It's an attitude of heart. I think, see, your question was, how should we conduct ourselves in the church? I think we should come to church, come to all aspects of connection with, with other believers, come to this podcast with an attitude of going, I want to believe, now I'm going to check it, but I'm poised to believe that these guys, I'm listening to Rowan and Jeannie, these guys have my best intentions at heart. I'm listening to my sermon preacher on Sunday. I I want to believe they've put the effort in. I'm not expecting them to be perfect and they might say some things that aren't right, but I'm leaning in with faith, but I'm then going to study it myself and go away. And if I hear something that doesn't quite sit with me, I'm okay with that. I'll park that. Um, I'm going to just believe and act for the best. That's what I think we should be doing if we want to grow in our faith. And so what you're saying is we need to be active in our faith. Yeah. Yeah. Learning, listening, asking questions and serving. Yep. All of those things. That. Yep. And a quick question here. It's probably a long answer. But how do we know what a false teacher is? How do we recognize false teaching in the world around us? Um, <clears throat> let's have a look at it. what verse are we talking about? See if we can work it out from this particular context that he's talking about. 
well, it's verse one, isn't it? Verse Deceptive one. spirits okay. and teaching that comes from okay. demons. All right. So how do we know um, what a false teacher is? I think there are a few different things. I'm just, well, I'm trying to think of one. I want to put it in its context because I think there are a variety of different things that throughout the New Testament that would talk about what false teachers do. They, there would be some that would say they, they attract people away to themselves. So they, they form a cult. You know, they become the Messiah and they want people to follow them. I've been watching Waco. So Waco, yeah. yeah, so exactly. So they they take people to themselves, which is what cultish behaviour does. What some spiritual abusers do, they take people to themselves. I think that's false teaching. So if it's not pointing to Jesus, if it's not Jesus-centred, then it's false teaching. You should be able to listen to that and go, I actually want to honour Jesus more than the person who's delivered it to me. If you're, if you're all about the person, you've probably... Um, either misinterpreted what they've said or they're a false teacher. Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, that's that's not the only thing. Um, there is, uh, well, it almost is. We talked about we talked in First Corinthians twelve about uh, about honouring um, that that no one can say Jesus is cursed who is by the Spirit. And I think if there's if it's Christ centred in teaching, Christ centred in worship, it's by the Spirit of God. So that look without going into too much depth, there'll be other things, but that's a good simple answer. Is, is it pointing to Jesus? If it's is it not, illuminating is Jesus? Is it illuminating Jesus? Are you more in love with Jesus as a result of listening to that teaching than not? If not, then it, is it false teaching? It's probably not. It's at least not full. the full teaching of Christ. might not be deliberately false. It could just be um, misunderstood or it could be someone who doesn't fully grasp their teaching gift, the importance of teaching yet. Give grace to people, especially if they're new preachers. You don't want to just expect the highest demand of them. It's a, it's an art. It takes time. I like to give preachers a go and then give them feedback. So I might say, hey, you need to talk about Jesus more and not about yourself so much. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Just they're learning that. Um, so, yeah, I think is it is it pointing to Jesus? And I would add questions. Is it abusing people? Yeah. Is it using people? Mm -hmm. Is it destroying lives? Yep. Is it ripping families apart? Yep. Uh, is it um, is it demanding all of your money? Yep, all of those things. All of those are things. Not Christ centered. Not Christ centered. So that's that's that that's a much more fleshed out version of what I was saying. But it's good to probably bring it down from my level back down to that practical level there. Yeah. And I think the, it, yeah, the big key is is it, is it abusing the congregation? Yeah. Yeah. If if you're not having value added to your life when you're listening to preaching and teaching then I'd be wary of that. Yeah, definitely. If you're having value taken away from your life, um, if you're feeling controlled or manipulated, that's not Christ-centred. And downtrodden. And yeah. downtrodden. All of those things. You should feel empowered. Yeah. Thankfully, we don't find that in the Gospels. No, it's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. In 1 Timothy 5, here we hear we have advice about uh, widows, elders, and slaves, and in God's house, and basically what it looks like in God's house, how we look after people. Yep. And it says here to right, which is funny here in verse 2, going, we think back to what he says about women earlier treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Mm. In those cultures, 
there would have been people that or women that they would have thought were not at all pure. They have been uh, abused. Yep. They have possibly prostituted themselves. Yet here Paul is saying to them, you need to treat everybody with purity. Yep. Once again, he's elevating women. He's elevating women. Yeah. And he's saying these women are holy, pure as holy. Yeah. 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 Good point. Can't say it better myself. (laughs) He's elevating women there. So there's what he said before and now he says this, which is is huge and totally countercultural and would have been... An amazing thing for these women who It's incredibly liberating for these women to hear. Yes. Yes, it is. It's the opposite of what we think it's saying. Yeah. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah, good call. Yeah, and uh, talking about um, women take care of any widow. What was interesting in this is a true widow is a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays day and night asking God for his help. This is talking about somebody like Anna here mm, mm-hmm. in, uh, in th- when, Jesus, temple, is when babe, Jesus is a baby. Yeah, he's brought towards uh, to this woman Anna, and there's a lot of women that are like that in the Bible. They are these women who are truly seeking God, have placed their hope in God, and again he talks about it. I mean he he's <laughs> he's well, lifting them up here. Well, in a sense, in a culture where. A patriarchal culture where you know it, look, don't be totally heavy on Romans. If if um, if a, if, a, if a man died, there, there there is evidence in Roman culture of the matriarch of the house. So if the husband died, there was evidence that a woman would be the matriarch of that house and would have the role of the patriarch. So it's not like it's completely evident, but uh, completely absent. But that was just the the key woman in the house, the the key leader in the house, if the husband had died. But what we're talking about beyond that was that by and large, there's no, there's no social welfare. So if um, th- there's not opportunities for women by and large, other than the elites to generate income themselves. So a widow would have been completely out on the street. And in fact, it was that and, and not able to survive. And it's that that the church did. They went after these widows and they brought them in and they actually cared for them and became a welfare an internal welfare system so that these these widows actually had the opportunity to survive and their children would survive. And that's how the, a lot of the church was built on the back of, of inviting um, those that the world had created as outcasts to bring them in. And so we're seeing here the church playing out in real time in, in this sense that yeah. they are supporting these widows yeah. and they're helping them. But then there's these verses here, it says, hey, make sure you check and see if they're yeah. real widows or not. Yeah, it, And the right. true test is that their heart is all for God. Their they true the test time. is their heart is God. And if they have an opportunity to remarry, let them, is what Paul says. You so know, they're not draining the They're not draining the finances, resources. They should be the contributors resources. in some other way. So he's, it's thinking economically as well as relationally here. And he's saying, don't, don't let, you know, think about it. If a, if a young woman, maybe she's 25 and she's married and her husband's died, um, she's got a lot of life ahead of her. And he's basically, it sounds like he's having a, a hard go at women, but he's basically saying, look, a 25-year-old woman gets freeloading and you just start feeding her everything. She's not going to contribute anything to the community. In fact, she's going to go around and create strife. Don't let that happen is what he's saying. He's not down on the woman. He's just saying in those sorts of situations, it might be better for that woman to, you know, we'll care for you, but I want you to, Think about remarrying. Think about looking for an opportunity to to um, add value rather than be a drain on resources. So um, he, that's why he's contrasting these women, these older women, and saying if they've got a reputation for caring for others, hey, care for them, look after them. Speaking of the older, wi- uh, the true widows, the older widows, uh, I've got this note here that says that 
that ministry was was their great absorbing interest. Ministry was their great absorbing ministry, interest. yeah. And yeah. so they're praying for others in day us. and night. So they're actually uh, taking on a huge role. They're mm. providing a huge service in the mm. church. Mm. They're the, your intercessors here. Yeah, these are your women intercess praying in an intercessory manner for everybody in the church, yep. and it is that their ministry. They're widows, yet their whole heart is for God and for its people. Yep. And I think that's a reciprocation on, you know, they are being provided for and, you know, they recognize, hey, if I'm being provided for, I'm working for the church. I'm working for the family now. I'm provided by the church. Just like a a pastor works for the church and gets provided, these guys might, these ladies might be um, not in a paid capacity as an employee, but they are being fed by the church, but they want to give back to the church. And they have such purpose. Mm. Yeah. And maybe for the first time they have purpose. Maybe real for the first purpose. time in their life they have purpose. They have purpose. Yeah. yeah. And they're given this, it's almost a place of honour, I would it's say. It's a huge place of honour. I think yeah. Paul lists them and, you know, these, he's saying these people, these, these women deserve great honour. And definitely. if he starts this, this book off by saying, pray for everybody, pray always, here you have the older widows praying for everybody. The widows are doing exactly what he yeah. says at the beginning. Yeah, amen. Amen on that one. Good. I think that really uh, sums up our time. Certainly does. <laughs> uh, We've had plenty of time. So, so long, but it's been really uh, interesting <laughs> and fun. And I don't know <laughs> what I've talked about, but I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast. And um, Rowan and I have had enjoyed it, having a lot of jokes. But we pray that it is um, a blessing to you. And may God bless you this week as you go about your business. And take care. God bless you. See you next time.